calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Today's guest is the author of three novels, The Honeybee Emeralds, The Foulest Things and Speak for the Dead. She holds a PhD in English Literature and has worked at Canada's National Archives, Library and Archives Canada for 20 years. She lives in Ottawa with her husband, daughter and dog. It's my pleasure to welcome Amy Tector. Amy, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Bianca. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's uh, we're delighted to have you here. I had the honor of blurbing Amy's last novel, Speak for the Dead. And Amy, could you tell our listeners a bit about that today before we dive into questions about balancing writing and life? Yes, absolutely. Speak for the Dead is the second in the Dominion Archives mystery series, and it follows a new protagonist from the first book, which was The Foulest Things. And this one looks at or follows the adventures of Kate Spencer, who's a medical coroner, so she's a doctor. She's called out to a very a disused, abandoned, creepy building in the middle of a thunderstorm to examine a body that's been discovered. It's an apparent suicide, but Kate has her suspicions that that is not uh, all is not as it seems, and so she begins investigating trying to uncover what's uh, what's going on. And as it's a Dominion Archives mystery, there is a big element of history and she has to work as it happens. The building is a, a building, an outbuilding of the National Archives, of the Dominion Archives. So she has to work with archivists and, and use the historical sources and other things to to untangle the mystery and figure out what's happened and solve this murder. Wonderful summary. I love the book. So for our listeners, we are linking to it on our affiliate page. But what I really want to focus on today, Amy, is because you have been hugely prolific. There are some writers out there that take 10 years to write a novel or maybe publish every three or four years, whereas you've gotten three novels out the gate really, really fast. And you have a full-time job, you're a mother, you're extremely busy. And this is something that we hear from our podcast listeners all the time. I've got kids, I've got things happening in my life, I've got a full-time job. How the heck am I supposed to prioritize time for writing? How am I even supposed to find time for writing? So today I really want to... I want to focus on that and see what your advice is for our listeners. So to begin, how do you navigate work, family and life demands with your writing life? Yeah, I mean, I, I do sound on paper. I look very prolific, so I will put some caveats. I did. I got three books out in a year, which is insane. 
Now, I didn't write those. I wrote those books over probably 15 years. And it just so happened through a confluence of events that I was able to do this with my new publisher that took me on with Honeybee Emeralds. They were interested in books, my sort of the books that I had shelved, they they thought were worth sprucing up. So I didn't write three books in a year, but I was very, 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 very busy. My other caveat is that I was lucky enough last year to have a year off. And my, my job, I do work at the National Archives here in Canada. They very kindly gave me an unpaid leave. So that I couldn't have done anything without that. Or I couldn't have done nearly what I did without that leave. So I don't want to create unrealistic expectations for anyone. I was very lucky in both those instances. That being said, I have always written and I'm currently writing while working full time. And it is tough. And I have a daughter and a marriage and friends and family and all sorts of responsibilities like everybody does. So that thing, finding the time for everything is a challenge. My superpower, my wonderful thing that I have is that I am an early riser. So that's like I'm up at five on my own without an alarm clock most mornings. And so that is a wonderful two hour span that I have where if I, if I set my mind to it, I can be productive and nobody else in the house aside from the dog is awake at that point. So that's massively helpful to me. Mind you, I'm going to bed at 930. So <laughs> it's not, yeah, I'm, I'm losing it on the other end, but that, and, and I am at my freshest, I am, I am perky and ready to go. And then I just slowly wilt as the, as the clock ticks down. So that's probably the biggest thing for me is, is those early morning hours. But that being said, I don't always use them efficiently. I don't always use them for writing. I get on TikTok like everybody else, or I screw around, <laughs> you know, just doing ridiculous things and, and fritter away that time. So it's not like I am, you know, a dedicated powerhouse pumping out the words. I try to be, and I find another trick that is helpful for me because I am goal-oriented is to give myself that kind of word count every day or at least every week and say I'm going to hit X number and then I hit that. I usually, if I set that for myself, I'll hit it and my cheat is, which might be helpful to listeners, is it doesn't matter if they're good words and that's how I, what I tell myself and that's my self-talk is I just have to do the, hit the quantity. It doesn't have to be quality at this point quantity, quantity to quantity. And in that quantity, there's enough quality, I hope, that it's not a waste of time, but it helps that that's another sort of productivity hack that I have used that has been helpful. All that being said, like I said, there have definitely been times where I haven't been productive at all. And I think that's really important to acknowledge as well. You can't be, and it's okay and to give yourself grace and writing is a wonderful thing. And I will never tell someone not to write, but sometimes I have had brutally demanding jobs. I have had family stuff going on. I have a, I have a life and there are times when I can't write, I don't want to write. And I've beaten myself up about it and thought, Oh, I mean, you know, I'm getting up at five and I'm not being productive. I'm becoming more forgiving of myself for that as well. There's lots of time like it, it will come and forcing when your life isn't in the right place to try to be creative, I think, is just setting yourself up for heartbreak and difficulty. So sometimes it's OK to just be kind and soft to yourself. Yeah, totally. And something you said there. So for our listeners, not everybody's going to be morning people, right? So some of you in the morning are blurry eyed 
you're you're angry that you've had to wake up. The coffee hasn't hit yet. So I think trying to say to people who aren't morning people, get up and write in the morning, that isn't helpful. But check your own natural rhythm. See when you are feeling most alert. See when you are feeling most creative. For some people, that might be during your lunch hour. For some people, that might be at night after the kids have gone to bed. I've seen moms who take their laptops with and they sit in the car with them as their kids are playing hockey or whatever the case may be is, and they get in that hour of writing then. So the big thing here is find the time when you're by yourself, when you have the least amount of interruptions and try and carve that out for the writing. And then as well, something that I've done, you were talking about your daily goals. So what I've tried to do these last few months is I've said to myself, okay, there are four days a week that I'm going to try and write. And then I've done my goals in terms of I want to finish the book by this date. And then Scrivener works it out for you as to how many words you have to do a day if you're only working writing four days a week. And then I saw that I had to work write a thousand words a day. And that was like, that's quite a bit a lot of words to get down on the page. And I found that I was getting quite anxious about that. Whereas when I said, okay, I'm going to write every day, instead of needing to write a thousand words, I only needed to hit 400 words. And that was so much more psychologically accessible to me. And most days I go over the 400 words and I kind of like space bank those words. I'm like, okay, so I'm already at Wednesday's words, which takes a lot of the pressure off. So we've got to find ways to trick ourselves in terms of managing our anxiety and rewarding ourselves when we hit those goals. Do you have like little things that you reward yourself with if you hit your weekly or your monthly goals? Well, I'm such a nerd that getting the A of hitting my hitting my goals is extremely satisfying to me. So that's like a major dopamine hit just to to have done the thing that I set out to do. I did reward myself with Scrivener, which I which is a tool I don't have a lot of writing tools. I used to write everything in Google Docs, which was fairly horrifying in retrospect. But Scrivener, just as you said, that was money really well spent for me because it took. There is a learning curve. There's a lot of sort of bells and whistles I don't use, but the that breakdown of the word count has been massively helpful. And that was something that I like. I set myself a goal. Okay, if you've if you've written as uh, if you've gotten this far in the book. Your, your reward is going to be Scrivener. So so that has that had been helpful. In the mornings when I write, I always have my cup of tea, but I've sort of told myself, okay, you can't actually eat your breakfast until you've at least gotten halfway. So that's a silly one. And I, I don't follow it because <laughs> I like my breakfast, but it kind of, it is a little bit motivating that way. Yeah. And then other times I also, I only have the one daughter. And so my weekends aren't back-to-back driving kids to hockey and soccer and things like that. And so usually I can get a nice hour to to write in the middle of the day, which actually is a reward in itself because it can be hard to carve out time away from your family to write. But the flip side of that is I have, I'm lucky enough to have an office of my own. So I close that office door and everyone in my house understands that I can't be disturbed because I'm working, because what I'm in there doing something legitimate. And so I can't get bugged about where someone's socks are or that we forgot to put the garbage out or what have you. And so that then can become sort of a sanctuary and a reward, especially on the weekends. And I'll have a nice like cup of tea or a hot chocolate or something and and work for an hour or two. But you're right about having sort of um, 
pleasures or, or things to look forward to makes a big difference in terms of motivating yourself to sit there and, and get the words out. And that's important what you said there is that everybody knows when you're in your office, you're working. Because even though we love writing, even though we do it because it's a passion, even though, you know, we have all of these, um, this drive to write, it is work. And it's important that people in your life don't see it as, oh, this is the time that you sit around messing around because you're not, you are working. And it's important that the people in your life get that and that they respect that. And in terms of rewards, again, for each of you, some people like gold stars, make yourself a chart, give yourself a damn gold star every time you hit your word count. If you are motivated by other things, say this is something I would really like to get myself, to spoil myself with, and I will buy this once I have 50 gold stars. Everybody works differently and everybody's motivated by different things. For some people, it might be a trip that they want to go on or there might be smaller things. Like for me, when I reach my goals, then I'm like, oh, I'm going to buy myself these books that I would have felt guilty about buying. But now I'm like, no, that's part of my reward. I've worked hard for them. And so I'm not going to feel guilty about having them. So for listeners, find the things to reward yourself with, right? Okay, so what's the toughest part of writing while having a full-time job? Time is the obvious one. It's just hard to find time. But I, so we'll leave that one aside. And I, I would say actually it can be motivation, especially depending on what your job is and how demanding it is. I've had jobs where I do a lot of writing in my job. That makes writing for fun less fun and less motivating. I've also had jobs that were just stressful for a variety of reasons. And again, that has really sucked the motivation away from me for writing because I've gone into a, a little bit of a survival mode there. And, and so even though writing is so creatively fulfilling and I did it for so long without being published, so I was really motivated by the creative fulfillment and nothing nothing else, even though I know I knew that it was just as soon as it becomes a task or something hard to do, it, it, it was difficult to accomplish that when other parts of my life were a struggle. So so for me, it's how much how much brain power your job takes away from from your writing and that is challenging and so I've tried as I've gotten older and I'm more confident in my in my work and in myself as a professional to have stronger boundaries between my work and my life not even necessarily time boundaries but even just brain boundaries where I'm where more and more I'm trying to be able to when I turn my computer off for work at the end of the day I'm not going to think about it and I'm going to separate myself from it because I don't know how you you could create something, whether it's, you know, a memoir or a, a novel or whatever, and have a big chunk of your brain worrying about the next day's reports or the HR problem or the whatever the things are that you're worrying about. You need to have some mental clarity. And so I have found I don't want to sacrifice writing. And so I have found more and more I am confident in telling my supervisors no, I can't do that, or I will do that. It, that will be later than than anticipated because I know I need to give myself a little more space so that I can write and I can protect I can protect my mind that needs less stress. And again, I'm in a super privileged position where I've been I'm at a place far enough along in my career where I feel confident in that, and I and I have my I have the trust of my employers. Not everybody has that, which is goes back to sometimes writing. It feels wrong to say this, but sometimes it isn't the right time to write. Sometimes you need 
to, to be doing other things. And I think sometimes we like, you know, writing so important, you've got to carve out the time you could, you know, find that 10 minutes when you're not busy and you, you can type something out. It's like, well, maybe just be soft because there will be time. And I wasn't, I was in my mid forties before my first book was published. So I've had that angst of, oh, I've got to get this out. I've got to get this out. And it's actually, I can see you've got time. So be kind to yourself. <laughs> yeah, a lot of these deadlines are self-imposed. I know people who are like, well, I have to publish before I'm 50. Or I have to publish before this. Well, why? Have you signed a contract saying that? No, It's and it's good to have goals. And it's important to say, I would like to by this time, but no good comes from beating yourself up over something. And I find that the more pressure I put on myself, the worse the writing is. So there's that. And for those of you whose minds are constantly working in terms of, I've got to do this tomorrow, I've got to get to this, this and this. I find that I need to empty my brain before I begin writing. So I make a to-do list before I begin writing of everything I have to do the next day. So I figure that once I've got it all down on paper, I don't have to keep thinking about it because it's there. It's waiting for me to come back to it. And I know everything that I have to do the next day so that while I'm writing, I'm 100% focused on the writing and not trying to problem solve other things. And I also like to sit down with the scene. Let's say I've just finished a scene. I like to, in Scrivener as well, just make a few notes for what the next scene needs to accomplish. I'll write five notes. These are the five things that need to happen in the next scene. And once I've set that intention, I walk away and I find that my mind in the background is constantly stewing over those things. So that by the time I come back to sit down, it's almost like my brain is providing some solutions because I've set that intention kind of the day before. Again, this may not work for everybody, but these are little tips and tricks that are worth trying. So what's the best part of writing while having a full-time job? I think for me, it is the stimulation. So I happen to work at a place, the National Archives, that sort of has a lot of stories built into it. But even more than that, and what I have realized over the past few years with the pandemic and a lot of work from home, and then this year that I took off where I was at home every day writing and and being very busy in the writing, I stopped having those incidental social moments with my colleagues and with people coming into the archives and all that. And even being out and about taking taking transit to get to work and all the rest of it, all of that stopped. And I felt, I don't think it affected my writing, but I think it affected me in that those incidental meetings and that, that, that social interaction is really important. I don't think I'm super social, but, but those moments of encountering other human beings are extremely enriching to writing. Even if you don't like your coworkers, even if your, your boss is crazy, well, that can, that can work into your dragon character in your fantasy novel <laughs> bear a striking resemblance to your boss. Even today I had to go to the, I had to go renew my driver's license. And so I sat in a waiting room for an hour and a half and I put my phone away. Cause I was like, Oh, this is, there's a lot to absorb, observe here and absorb. And so I think working the working life for me, being forced out of my home every now and then and into the wider world is such a rich opportunity to remind myself that there's a lot more than just my little world going on. It's extremely enriching for, for my imagination to kind of do a little bit of quiet observation and have those encounters with other people, even if it's getting your driver's license renewed. <laughs> Yeah, you know what, everything is inspiration. And also, I remember when I first started writing in South Africa, I worked in insurance. 
bloody hated it. Absolutely hated it. I, I was a consultant and I had brokers yelling at me all the time and all these kinds of things. And just planning my writing, just thinking about it was this wonderful escape. And I'm at the point where if you aren't constantly plotting a novel in your head when you're standing in the the line at the grocery store to pay, or if you're sitting in a meeting that's going on forever and that really could have been a bloody email, if you aren't busy planning next things in your plots, and if you're not a writer, what the hell are you thinking about? Because this probably takes up 80% of my mental energy on any given day. So yeah, let everything be an inspiration. Let I've had moments where I've been stuck with something and I've just walked my dog in the park and I've overheard something and I'm like, oh my God, yes. And it jogs these things loose. So interact with the world because creativity and creation does not happen in a vacuum. We create because we are human beings interacting with the world. And sometimes that's the best thing you can do. I don't know about you, Amy, but sometimes as well, I get brain fog where I'm just like, I cannot write but I want to do something with my book. So on days that I sit down and it's just like the words are not coming, those are days that I will spend editing stuff that I've already written or perhaps brainstorming for future things. So there are many ways to create. And I know I'm always yelling at you guys and saying bum in chair, but creating isn't always hands on the keyboard. What other advice do you have about that? I am a big, big fan of walking. I really believe that it is like a massively important creative tool because it's easy. <laughs> and and I often just walk the same route. It's the action of it, right? You're you're just your brain is just occupied enough with putting one foot in front of the other and here in Canada it's an, uh, and avoiding the ice or the potholes in the spring or what have you. And there's just enough noise, there's just enough distraction, there's just enough new things. But what's really happening is that I am writing in my head and I'm working out those plot details and, and all of the rest. So for me, walking has is like my number one creative trick is absolutely go for a walk. And it doesn't have to be in any way exercise. I, in fact, anti-exercise. No, I'm not. But but it, that's not the point. It's, it's, it's just... I think there's something there. And I think authors over the years, centuries, the long walk has been is a key part of the creative process, which is not available to everybody. And uh, there's lots of reasons why people can't walk, but it is it is a good one. And so, you know, there's mindless tasks. I hate puzzling jigsaw puzzling. I hate it, but lots of people don't hate it. And I, I would imagine that that would be something similar where your brain is occupied a little bit, has enough to keep sort of the anxiety down, which then can allow the contemplation to come up. Yeah. Repetitive things like knitting as well. I know a few writers who find knitting to be incredibly relaxing and it gets them into this meditative kind of state, so long as they're not doing a pattern that's too complicated and then that allows them to tap into something there as well. Last thing before we have to go, Amy, do you have anyone that you make yourself accountable to? So I remember years ago when I met Eleanor Catton when she won the last big award for, was it the Illuminaries? think that was the name of the novel she said that she had this writing group but that they didn't critique each other's work all they did was have accountability so they would say everyone by Friday had to email everyone else let's say 10 or 15 pages and all everyone else in the group did was just make sure that those pages were there on time and if they weren't they were like excuse me where are your damn pages and again that doesn't work for everybody some people might find that 
anxiety inducing, but I always know that I work best if there's someone out there who is expecting pages from me. So for me, that might be CC my agent. I'll say, I'll have these pages to you by this day. And then she'll message me where the hell are your pages for you? Is that something you do? Or are you able to just be accountable to yourself? It's a little bit of both. I do. Again, I, I am very self-motivated by those goals I set myself. So that often works, but I do have a second line of defense. I have a critiquing group I've been with for 20 years, which is very sustaining and, and wonderful. And once I'm, I'm in the midst of writing a novel, for instance, and so I'm sending them a couple of chapters a month, we're all sharing, sharing our material. And in fact, again, just this very morning, I emailed and was like, well, maybe I'm going to skip this month. Like I've got a lot of other stuff going on. And somebody responded and said, no, no, we want to see those pages. So that's just enough for me to be like, oh, fine, I'll send you the dang pages. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. I think I think an external source to send those to is really val valuable, definitely for a lot of people probably. Yeah. And if for our listeners, if you're one of those people, find someone in your life. This is the instance where they don't have to know anything about writing. Because I always say like beta readers, family members are great, but unless they know something about writing, it's not super helpful. But this is an instance where you can have a sister or, you know, a friend, just find the bossiest person in your life who doesn't take any shit and is not going to take the, oh, maybe not this week. Somebody's going to be like, to hell with that. I want these pages and just say to them, follow up with me by this day. I'm committing to this many pages and try that as well. We're all finding different tricks to see what works. The most important thing is just understanding that this is something important to you. Therefore, it needs to be prioritized and find ways in your life to prioritize them. Amy, it was such a joy chatting with you. For our listeners, look out for Amy's work. Remember, it's the honeybee emeralds, the foulest things, and speak for the dead. You'll absolutely love them, and there's a lot to learn there as well. Amy, thank you so much. Thank you, Bianca. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is CC. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. 
But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this month's Q&A segment. We're so glad to have you guys with us. So before we start, I have a podcast to recommend to all of you today. Writing Class Radio is the other writing podcast you must listen to. They air personal essays and then break them down so you understand how to write a great personal essay of your own. And also, the hosts are hilarious. Find Writing Class Radio wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm going to take the first question today. Hello, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. My question is, is it a bad idea or is there a reason you shouldn't submit novel excerpts from a work in progress to journals that are publishing those kind of submissions? And I just want to say thank you guys so much for the podcast. I love it. My dog loves our hour-long walks as we listen to an episode every day. And I can't wait till I am not only a listener, but a published guest on your show. So thanks, guys. Okay, this is a this is a good question. So I actually don't think this is a bad idea to submit to journals. The only thing you really have to pay attention to is any sort of legalese, right? Like just make sure you're not actually signing away any rights if you're going to be submitting any material. That's one thing that you have to watch out for. But otherwise, it's not like, you know, it's not like it's going to be circulated so widely or freely or anything like that, that I think it's going to be a problem down the line personally. And again, if you are to get a book deal, you might want to even go back to them and say like, hey, can you take this down now? So again, just kind of make sure you know what you're signing away and how long that this company has something, this journal has something, whether it's an exclusive or you know a certain amount of time that sort of thing that's kind of what to watch out for but no I don't think it's a bad idea thank you Carly okay here is our second question and we'll ask Cece to answer it for us hi Cece Bianca and Carly I have been trying to find a editor for a long time and I've, I've gone through quite a few and seeing that I do not come up in the literary world it's kind of a new world for me, I found myself having a little bit of trouble finding them. Just looking through the internet was very daunting. And I wanted to know what advice would you give other writers who are having the same issue as me? I just recently found New York Book Editors, and it's a website that you know outsources editors. And I feel pretty confident about it, but I just wanted to know if you knew about them and what your advice is for people in this situation like me. Thank you. So we get this question a lot, and I guess we have to be mindful of everyone's situation, right? And I'll begin by saying that I don't know the website you mentioned, so I have honestly no opinion to share on that. But when it comes to the larger question, I personally feel that the most important criteria when choosing an editor is ensuring that the person has a proven track record that matches your genre and goals. So for example, if you're writing in the memoir space and your goal is to publish with the big five, you should find an editor who has worked on a book that was eventually sold to a big five and ask to speak to their clients. 
when you connect with them, make sure to ask all the questions you have. If you can get a referral from someone you trust in the writing community, even better. A follow-up question that I get a lot is, what if an editor is starting out and doesn't have a track record? And let's be honest, that's riskier. They might be great at their job, but you won't have any concrete way to vet them. On the other hand, maybe they don't cost as much and maybe they have more availability and perhaps they'd be open to a trial run that allows you to see whether their style fits yours. So it'll be up to you to decide, you know, what fits your goal, what fits your budget. Nothing wrong with trying someone with no track record as long as that's a conscious, intentional decision. And all in all, please remember, no editor is better than a bad editor. And like with so many things in life, you'll likely have to put yourself out there to find the right match. Thank you, Cece. Okay, next question, and we'll ask Kali to answer it for us. Hi there, my name is Eileen, and I just finished listening to your jam-packed February bonus episode. It was wonderful, so much information, and thank all of you. I did notice a conflict, though. At the beginning of the episode, Carly answered a question about how many reviews a comp book should have that we include in an agent query, and she recommended a minimum of 5,000 reviews. But at the end of the episode, a lot of the books Emily was recommending for comps don't have that many reviews. They might have a few hundred or 1,200. And I was wondering what we should do. Maybe split the difference, have one book that is 5,000 reviews, but another book that is still excellent that maybe only has 500 and is a great comp. I was wondering if you would revisit that question and let us know. Thanks again. Love you all. All right. So I love that you guys are paying such close attention to everything we say on the pod because you're like, wait, somebody's saying something and this disagrees with that. And I, I love it. So, okay. So let's kind of break this down about why that would be the case here. So I was going by books that have been published, have been out in the world. This is kind of industry advice that I would give you know, to everybody. So our wonderful bookseller that comes on, Emily, that gives us all of those uh, recommendations, she is often talking about a lot of books that haven't been published yet, but are getting a lot of early buzz and that sort of thing. So your question about like, do I split the difference between what Emily said and what Carly said? No, please don't split the difference. You either you go with what I said in terms of those numbers, or you're focusing on one of these buzzy, buzzy titles that's getting a lot of attention. And yes, I agree. They might not have a lot of reviews, but you're going by the buzz, maybe or the print run or something like that, as opposed to splitting the difference. I hope that makes sense. Also on that, I think it's easier when there is a comp that is like the perfect comp and it's got that many reviews and it ticks all the boxes. And maybe you have one of those comps, but maybe you don't have the perfect comp and the perfect comp is a buzzy book that's about to come out and maybe it doesn't have that many reviews, but would it help then, Carly, for them to have two comps? One that has a whole bunch of reviews, but maybe isn't as perfect, and then one that's really perfect but has all the buzz. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love when we are so intentional and thoughtful with our comps. You know, I've talked about before how comps can kind of play off of each other. Another example of that would be, you know, if you're going to use a very historical comp in terms of like, you know, a Victorian novel, always pair that with a modern project. Or if you're going to use a podcast comp, also have a book comp. It's the same, you know, like you said, Bianca, right? If we're going to have our perfect, perfect comp that maybe doesn't have as many sales, make sure your other comp is an extremely successful book. So we're, we're always using these, these comps in conjunction with each other. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, next question for Cece. 
Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. Thank you for the podcast and for all that you do. My question is, in a query, you are pitching a single book, but hoping to find an agent that will represent you ideally for an entire career. Is it worth mentioning in the query briefly what some of your goals are, for example, writing in another genre that they also represent? Thank you. Interesting. Okay, so this is one of those questions where I think it's best for you to be preemptively strategic. I would not include in the query letter that you plan to write in other genres. It could be a turnoff for some agents. And it feels a little early in the game for you to be sharing that. I would, however, mention that in the call with the agent before you sign with them. It's really important to be honest. But first, let the agent fall in love with your work, right? So the agent's going to fall in love with your work. They're going to ask for a fall. They're going to ask for a call. And then, yes, you're going to be totally transparent about your goals. But let them fall in love with your work first. Thanks, Cece. Next question. We'll ask Carly to answer this one. Hi there, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. The shit has changed my writing life. Thank you for the helpful advice I've devoured while catching up on back episodes and also for taking my question today. Two, actually. I've written a cozy mystery about a chambermaid at a swank hotel who finds a dead body in a bed. Sound familiar? That's because Nita Prose has written an excellent novel about the same thing. I've heard her being interviewed on the podcast twice. While my character is vastly different, who could match Molly? There are some obvious but surface similarities between The Maid and my series, Made for Murder. How should I address this when querying, or is The Maid just too hot right now and I should stop writing the sequel and give up on querying? Your thoughts? Thank you so much for your time. All right. This is a tricky one. So yes, The Maid was an international sensation. So everybody knows about it. Everybody kind of knows what the hook of the book is. So yes, I would say your book sounds incredibly similar. What I will say is that I think at this point, The Maid's been out for a year and a half, right? It has been a commercial success, meaning, you know, it defied a lot of categories. I would just kind of call it commercial fiction at this point. So the fact that yours is a cozy is kind of a different category than like mainstream commercial. So I do think it's okay to be submitting this. I think you are going to have a lot of people saying, yes, this sounds very similar to The Maid. So, you know, I I would just, I would hate for you just to like sit on a really great book just because you're like, hmm, this sounds a little bit similar. Do you know what I mean? I really, I would like you to get this out there. I just just know that, yeah, you're, you're going to probably have some people saying like, hmm, this is a bit familiar, but I would just double down on the fact that it's a cozy, really double down on that. All right. And the next question is for Cece. Hi, Bianca, Cece, and Carly. I love the podcast. I've learned so much from you. I have a question about Instagram. I'm not really that active on social media. I do follow Carly on Instagram, and she said that when she requests a manuscript, she also wants the social media handles, and I know you guys have mentioned that in query letters as well. I am on Instagram. I don't use it that much, mainly to follow my friends and watch videos of cats and you guys. So I'm wondering if, since I'm getting close to querying my first novel, if I should set up a new Instagram that is more book focused and specific or just build on the one I already have. Thank you so much. Interesting. Okay. So I would not start a new Instagram unless you have privacy concerns about the content that's already there, in which case starting a new one is totally fine. So you already follow Carly. Why not follow other literary citizens, authors, agents, editors, and of course, bookstagrammers. That'll signal to the algorithm that you're a book person and hopefully that'll help grow your community. Share their posts, the ones that resonate with you, of course, in your stories or however else you want to share them. And soon people might start sharing yours. And most of all, post the books that you love. 
the books that you're reading, the books that you're enjoying, the books that you're excited to read, and tag the author. It can be as simple as posting the picture of the book with a quote from the book that you enjoyed or with like a review, anything you want. Why am I saying this? Because chances are the author will see it. Authors love getting tagged on positive posts. They love it. Every single author loves it. And they will remember. So when your agent submits your work to publishers, they'll see that you've been steadily posting book-related content in a positive and engaging way. And that will mean that you'll be in a good position to ask for blurbs when it's your time to be the author. So that will be my advice to you. Awesome, Cece. Okay, next question for Carly. Hi, my question, and first let me say I'm working with kids who are traumatized, could be the pandemic, something at home. But um, every time I work with a new kid, I have to write a new book. And I'm calling it a breakthrough book because I'm facing kids who don't want to talk or kids who, you know, have a repetitive behavior that suggests there's trauma. So, you know, I'm writing books like The Boy Who Would Not Speak. And um, is there a genre called breakthrough books or books that you know, picture books, simple readers for children, you know, that we're trying to reach through literature. I hope I'm making myself clear. I'm, I, the question is, is there a genre called breakthrough books? Thanks. You know, I don't have a good answer to this. You know, I don't think that breakthrough books in terms of like, you know, learning how to read like that's I don't I don't know all of the different categories of those books. A lot of those books are very like, IP driven, meaning the publisher comes up with the ideas, they're part of a series like the I can read series, every publisher, you know, kid lit publisher kind of has their version of it, you know, scholastic, etc. So again, a lot of things need to check those boxes to fit into those those early reader series. So yeah, I don't know, I don't have a really good answer for this. Other than, you know, one of my favorite resources is just check out KidLit 411. They're an incredible resource. But yeah, sorry, I don't have a better answer here. Thank you, Carly. Next one for Cece. Hi, everyone. I just had a, a quick question. If author has a strong marketing plan, or what they think is a strong marketing plan, should they include that in their query letter or how can they express that plan to the agent? So they have a what they think is a good story and a marketing plan to go with it. How would they be able to express that in not such a lengthy way? And is that even helpful or should they just wait till somebody says yes and then tell them the plan? Thank you. I wish I knew your genre because this might be different for fiction versus nonfiction. If a marketing plan is truly strong, truly impressive, then including a couple of lines about it with concrete examples in your author bio is a great idea. It can be something like, quote, I have prepared a strong marketing plan for this book, including, then you insert the actionable example, end quote. What would an actionable example look like? I once read a query that mentioned that the author had connections in the White House and could get blurbs from specific people there. They mentioned the people. And because it was a policy book in the nonfiction space, that was spot on in terms of an example of what they could bring to the table for the marketing plan. But it's very important that you're specific about it because if it's just, you know, I have a marketing background and I'll be very comfortable promoting the book, that goes without saying, not the part about your background, but the part about promoting. So really it's about leaning into that specificity in terms of the specific value it's going to bring. Thank you, Cece. Okay, next one for Carly. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. I am writing a sports romance book where there is a bad boy hockey player love interest. So what I'm wondering is, 
if it's okay if I have my bad boy hockey player play for the NHL and if I specify that he plays for a specific NHL team, for example, like the Vancouver Canucks. I am wondering if there are any sort of legality issues around that or if I can go ahead and have him uh, play for an NHL team. The reason I want him to play for an NHL team is because I need him to have some press some bad press involved, some things like that where he gets some pretty good attention from paparazzi and things like that. And I think that that would work the best with a high profile league. So yeah, that's my question. Thank you. Oh, I love, I love this. I think it's like the Canadian in me that's like, just love bad boy romances with NHL players. I don't know. It's just, it's a classic sports romance trope that, uh, that I love. Okay. So in terms of legality issues, so it is fine to mention a real team. However, you cannot slander that team or say anything bad about that team, right? To kind of encourage any legal issues. It's kind of like saying, you know, a character goes to Harvard or goes to Yale, right? It's like an institution. So this player is allowed to play for that team. But I would, again, make obviously this player fictional. That's incredibly important. The coach is fictional, right? Like all of that. But as an institution, it is a well-known institution. And so I think that's fine. I'm also not an IP lawyer. So, you know, obviously you can get a second opinion on that. But just make sure you're not actually slandering the organization. And I think you're good. Great, Carly. Thank you. Okay, next one for Cece. Hi. I was wondering if there was any value in querying agents with a previously published book. I published a book a few years ago with a small publisher and I'm working on something now, but I don't know if it makes sense to try to get the ball rolling before that thing is done or if it's just me looking for efficiencies or shortcuts where there doesn't need to be one or there isn't one. That's it. Thank you. I'm assuming you own the rights to this book and not the small publisher you mentioned, because otherwise the question would be a moot point. So the short answer, no. (laughs) The long answer, your book was already published. It's already out there. Unfortunately, the general rule is that publishers are not interested. And so agents aren't either because we need publisher interest to sell something. Are there exceptions? Of course, there are always exceptions. Especially if the self-published book sold millions of copies, right? But I would honestly just focus on the new book you're writing. Don't worry about efficiency so much. Worry about producing the very best manuscript you have in you. And then you'll match with an agent and you'll sell that new book. Great, Cece. Thank you. Next one for Carly. Hello, I've got a question about comps within a nonfiction book proposal. When you list the information, should it be the first edition in hardback or a more recent edition in paperback? Thanks so much. All right. So I always list the original edition because as you guys know, as an agent, I'm also helping write these proposals. So when I write the comp section, I'm always using the original edition. If you feel like you want to include both editions, again, I think that's fine. However, the only kind of instance where I would feel different is if it's like a 35th anniversary edition of blank title, like that's kind of important information because they kind of be marketing it all over again, would potentially again, be a different edition. Other than that, I always use the original edition. Thank you. Okay, Cece, next one. Hi, Carly and Cece. I was hoping you could shed some light on the typical range of an advance for a very normal novel debut at a big five publisher. I know there's a huge range and that it could kind of be anything, but I was just wondering what that range for like your very most normal clients is where it's not a huge crazy advance, but it's also not a tiny one. Where do most of your clients fall for that 
debut. Thank you guys so much. Bye. The famous question. Okay, so I understand you wanting to know this. I am validating your feelings. I am expressing my empathy. But here's the thing. There is no range. It varies wildly, like wildly. Publishing is institutionalized gambling and never is that truer than for a debut. An advance will depend on so many things, including the quality of the work, the perceived sales potential, different things, the zeitgeist, the market, how many other editors are interested. If you're curious about numbers, and it seems to me that you are, I recommend checking out Publishers Marketplace. Full disclosure, it's a paid subscription, but you can get it for just a month if that's possible. And it does have concrete data on ranges. Now, if you are able to subscribe, get in the habit of every single day looking at the daily deal announcements, specifically for debuts. They have a category, debut. And PM has its own language when it comes to dollar range for the advances. So for example, nice deal means anything from $0 to $49,000. Right. And then very nice deal is another $50,000 tier above that and so on and so forth. And keep in mind, not every announcement shares the range. Some people want to keep that information private, even when that information is super impressive. So really, I get it. I so, so get it. But it's not something that exists. It's not data that exists. Thank you, Cece. Okay, next one for Carly. Hello, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. My name is Anthony Catalano, and I have a few questions about prologues, which is a topic I know you like to discuss. First, you've spoken about how important it is to immediately engage the reader with your main character, but sometimes a book is begging to open with a scene from a false protagonist or a villain. Would this be a good place for a prologue to take the focus away from the main character so that they can formally be introduced in chapter one? Should sample pages include or skip the prologue? Finally, If a book includes both a prologue and an epilogue, does that make the rest of the book an interlogue? Thanks for being awesome. Okay, so Anthony, you're very funny. You're a very funny character. I feel like we need you. We need you on the show. Send in, send in your works. We can have you on the show. I love, I love the idea of this. Right, the villain opening, you know, opening the prologue. If 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 that feels right for your story, you know, if if that just again, it's a trope that has worked in thrillers and will continue to work in thrillers. I agree with you. It does create a lot of distance kind of between the main character because we're like, hmm, who are we following for this book? But again, if it's short, I think it can work. Like, I mean, very short, like a page and a half short, very short. And your next question was around the sample pages. So always include your prologue and your sample pages because if I request your partial and the prologue is not there and then I request your full and all of a sudden a prologue shows up, like that just affects everything. It just makes me question like, why didn't you send it? Were you not confident in it? Did you think that it's exclusionary in the sense that like, I don't actually need that prologue to understand the book, but that's so then I would say, then why do you have a prologue? I have a lot of questions about those, those types of, um, those types of decision-making. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's my advice there. And yeah, I don't know. I just think you're funny, Anthony. So well done you. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Next one for Cece. Hi, thank you for this great podcast. My question is, in the query for a dual POV novel, should I include the first five pages for each POV or just the first five pages for the entire book? Thank you. This is an easy peasy one. You should include the first five pages for the entire book. Well, that was simple. All right. Next one for Cece. Hi, I signed with an agent about a year ago for my memoir, which is about motherhood, breaking cycles of abuse and epigenetics. And I've done two revisions per my agent's suggestion. We both think it's in a pretty good place. 
However, she did say that no one is really interested in buying memoirs at the moment unless you're like Prince Harry and then we we should wait a little bit. So I told her that, you know, there's two books going gangbusters right now that are similar to mine. There's I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy and What My Bones Know by Stephanie Fu. I've emailed her these comps and I haven't heard back for a few weeks. And I'm just wondering, like, is that normal? Are people not buying memoirs right now? Like, I know she has personal stuff going on. So, like, is this a thing where maybe I just need to find a new agent who, like, really wants to champion my work? That starting that process all over feels like I want to curl up in the fetal position and cry. Would love your thoughts. Okay. I really wish that we were talking one-on-one in person, not even one-on-one, right? Because there's three of us. So like three-on-one. I wish I could like lean in, ask permission to hold your hand, squeeze your hand, because I want you to know that I care so much and empathize so much with your situation. This is a very, very important question. You are right to be asking it. When it comes to the market, I might not have the information your agent has, but my understanding is that it's always tough to sell memoir. Publishers always want celebrity memoirs more for obvious reason. They have a built-in audience, right? Like obvious reasons. I don't think it's tougher now than it was six months ago. And I don't think it's going to get easier in six months. But again, that's just my understanding, my interpretation of the market. This is not an exact science situation. We're trying to predict the future in terms of whether you should find a new agent. Again, this is the part where I'm leaning in, holding your hand, squeezing it, talking to you as a creative person. This is something that only you can answer, obviously, right? Like only you will know when if and when it is time. What I will say is that in a healthy agent-client relationship, you should be comfortable speaking up. This part, I have no doubt that it's advice that is that should be should apply to everyone. You should be comfortable speaking up. Now, I know that it's super daunting for many people, and often the reason why it's daunting is not the agent's fault, right? Some people are just naturally anxious. I know I am. And that anxiety might get in the way. It might create imposter syndrome. So here's the thing though, a good agent wants to hear from you. A good agent wants to know how you're feeling. So my advice, ask for a call, open your heart, share your concerns, share your feelings, listen to your agent, have them listen to you and make a decision based on whatever that conversation yields, because it seems like you're sharing more with us than you're sharing with your agent, right? And that's also not fair on them because they should know that you're not feeling okay right now. They should know about your doubts. They should know about your insecurities. I understand it's hard, like genuinely I do. Please know that I empathize and I'm urging you to push through whatever's keeping you from speaking up and honor your ambition, not your anxiety or whatever other emotion. If it helps, do it for your future readers. It might be difficult for you to be doing it for yourself. Picture your future readers, the people who deserve to read your book and do it for them. Talk to your agent and take it from there. Awesome, Cece, thank you. Okay, I will take this last question. Hey, Carly, Bianca, and Cece. I have a question. How do you know that you are in the right point of view? I feel like lately I've struggled with wanting to tell a multi-POV story, even, you know, two or three characters, but I only feel connected on a first-person level with one character. I don't know that I've ever seen a book that was told multi-POV where one was first-person and one was third person is that allowed if so do you have any examples of books like that and if not how do I know how to settle into one or the other so yeah thank you so much 
Right, so when it comes to POV, you can absolutely have a novel that has one first-person narrator and one third-person narrator. Absolutely. You asked for an example of a book that did this. I'm going to give my book as an example. So if you read my second novel, If You Want to Make God Laugh, has that exact setup. I have three narrators. Two of them are first person. One is third person. But here's the thing. You saying there's only one character who you're connecting with to write as first person. That should not be why you're writing a character in the first person. It shouldn't be that's the character you connect with the most. So choosing first or third person should depend on all kinds of things. Like, for example, writing a five-year-old in the first person is extremely difficult because you can only use the language that that five-year-old would know. You can only have the kind of reasoning that that five-year-old would have. For example, when you write in the first person, you can only tell the reader what that character themselves know. So in If You Want to Make God Laugh, the one character I wrote from the third person, purely because her perspective was so foreign to anything that North American readers would ever have encountered, I needed as the narrator to tell the reader things about this character's circumstance that the character themselves would not know nor would they actually be explaining it to the reader because it was such a part of their life. So that is why I chose the third person. So don't be picking first or third person depending on who you connect with the most. Say to yourself, I can use this character's voice. I can describe their experience in the same way they would experience it. So, you know, we've had people on the podcast say, I write in a very literary way, but this character is only 16 and they aren't very eloquent. Keep that in mind. If, if you want to write in your eloquent way, but this character wouldn't have access to that kind of language, then it would be better off writing that in the third person. So there's a whole bunch of things to consider, but take a look at that book. And, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of other books out there that have done the same thing. You can absolutely do that. Right, that's it for today's Q&As. If you have a question for us for next month, please go to our website, The Shit About Writing. There is a tab that says Ask a Question. You can either record your comp requests there or you can record your questions to Carly, Cece and myself. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. 
This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest is the founder and CEO of Author Accelerator, a company that trains and certifies book coaches. She's also the author of the Blueprint books. It's my pleasure to welcome Jenny Nash. Jenny, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We've had a few of the Author Accelerator book coaches on, and now we come to the mothership, (laughs) which is awesome. <laughs> right, we have got a ton we need to get through in a very short time, Jenny. So I'm going to be firing questions off at you. I'm ready. And let's see, let's see how much we can cover. I'm okay. ready. One one is, and this is a question we get a lot of the time. There are so many resources out there for writers who have limited income to spend on their craft, but they do want to spend on their craft and they want to invest in themselves. So how are they to know what is a waste of time and money and what is a wise investment in their careers? Well, this is a huge question we could talk for days about, but I think the first thing is to be extremely clear about your goals. There's so many different reasons to write a book. And one of those reasons might be for your own healing. One might be for your own pleasure. One might be to learn how to write a book. I mean, most of the time, that's how we learn is by writing a book. There's so many different 
goals that writers have. And I think people get into trouble when they they are not clear and they and they conflate all their goals together. It's like, well, I love to write and I want to learn how to write a book and I'd like to be published and I'm I'm gonna glom all those goals together into one one project. And and then when they seek help for that, they don't know what kind of help to seek. And so I think that's a way that people get into trouble. So knowing why you're writing this book, what is your intention for it? What are you trying to accomplish? And what's the outcome that's going to mean success for you? That's the first thing. And then once you have that defined, you can decide what kind of help would be best to help you reach that goal. So obviously somebody who is trying to learn, for example, or who is doing this because it's fun or they want to see if they can or those sorts of things, you're not going to go out and invest in an expensive editor or processor or workshop unless your goal is, well, I want to go to Italy with a famous writer and have a great vacation, then do that. But but know why you're doing it. To me, that's just the most important thing to not go spending money that you don't have to spend. Once once your goal or your intention is, well, I want to get published, I want to do the best job that I can, perhaps I've tried in the past and it hasn't worked out, then you might say, okay, what kind of help do I think I need? Do I need accountability? Do I need craft help? Do I need uh, strategizing for how to approach the marketplace? Defining what sort of help you need and then going out and finding that help. So that's the best guidance that I can give for that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And what I like there is kind of breaking down your goals as well, because I think, and, and that's true of most things in life. If you just write one big goal, it's it's hard to reach. But if you put it into actionable steps and you break it down into actionable pieces, it's so much easier. And for two years, your goal might be learning how to write a book. And that's your goal for two years. And after you've learned that, then for the following for the third year, your goal might be figuring out how you're going to get published. But it's important to separate them then to just have one goal. I want to be published. Oh, and by the way, I need to learn how to write a book in the process. Right. So, I mean, that learning how to write a book, there's actually very few places that you can do that. It's not what most MFA programs are focused on. You don't produce a book link work. It's not what most university-based writing programs offer. So where do you go to learn how to write a book? I mean, there's so many great resources online now, and you can get all kinds of help and advice and learning, and that's great. But it does take a lot of time. And to, you, you mentioned two years. I I wish that everybody said, I'm going to take two years to learn how to write a book, and then I'm going to attempt to enter the marketplace. I often think about, I like to paint. I'm terrible. I've never had a class, but I think it's fun. And I like to try to copy other things that people, other painters. And I would never in a million years think, well, I have painted this thing, and I'm now going to try to put it in a art gallery you know like i i barely will even put it on the wall of my house and i think sometimes with writing people get ahead of themselves and they need a chunk of time to learn how to write most people don't figure it out their first manuscript out of the gate yeah well and it's the same as anything so for example i came to canada from south africa in my late 30s 
and then learned how to ski. When I go skiing, I'm on the bunny slopes and I'm just hoping not to kill myself. <laughs> and I'm certainly not going, I'm going to enter the Olympics, right? right. So uh, yeah, it's important to have these kind of realistic expectations and manageable goals along the way. All right. So in terms of writers feeling a lack of agency in the publishing process, how can they make sense of a process where they feel like all they can ever really do is hope to get picked? And this really makes me think of years ago, I think I was in one of the Disney places, they said, okay, all the kids who want to get picked to come up on stage to play with a seal or whatever the case may be is must put their hands up. And obviously all the kids put their hands up and one kid got picked. And there was a child in front of me who threw one hell of a frothy. Sort was that of a head fit? Pounding. Yeah, <laughs> a, a fit of a head on the ground, pounding and everything. And their mom said to them, okay, well, we need to work on your getting picked skills. And, you know, I was like, okay, I don't know if this is good parenting or bad parenting because I'm not a parent, so I'm not going to judge. But I was just like, you know what, sometimes in life, even if you do everything right, you're still not going to get picked. There were 200 kids and only one kid was going to get picked. So for writers, is there such a thing as working on their getting picked skills? What kind of agency can they have in this process? I love this question so much. I I think the the getting picked culture in our writing community is is so toxic and and it comes from a long history in the publishing industry of there being gatekeepers and it being hard to get through those gates particularly if you were somebody that was outside of the mainstream of what publishing was was picking and so there's this legacy that we all have that this sort of cross my fingers, close my eyes. And I love that image of all the kids raising their hands saying, pick me, pick me, pick me. And when you think about it, that attitude completely disempowers the writer. All you can do is hope to be picked. And can you increase your chances of being picked Absolutely. There are, I mean, that's what your podcast is all about. There are skills that you can learn about researching the marketplace, approaching the marketplace, how you produce your query, which which you are all so good at helping people understand, sending it to the right agent. All of these things are skills that you can do to increase your chances and also write a good book, which is which is a thing that is often overlooked. But there is a certain point at which you can do all those things and still not get picked. And so I believe that the best approach for any writer is, it's quite similar to what I answered before, know why you're doing this and know what success means for you. And if success means for you, I've been asking people for 15 years to when they come to work with me, what what their goals are. And it's remarkable how similar the goals most people will define. And when you get down to it, a lot of people, what they're looking for is validation for their writing. They want to know that they're good enough and they also want to be heard. That's, that's a core reason why people write is they, they want they have something they want to say and whether they're saying it through a middle grade book about dragons or a memoir or a nonfiction book, they, they have something they want to share and they want to say. And giving up your power to somebody else to say, we want to hear what you have to say. We want you to raise your voice. You have permission is a terrible practice. And so I, I like people to, to define what can they control in terms of those things that they want. If you're looking for 
validation or if you're looking for permission or if you're looking for that it's okay for you to do this, to, to raise your voice, to claim your space, to take the time that it takes to do this work, whatever it may be in your own life that writing means to you to find a way to give yourself that. It's, it's almost like a grace, really, giving yourself a kind of grace because nobody else can give that to you. And you well know, anybody who's been published well knows, you don't actually really get it from the external things anyway. You might think people who haven't been picked think that getting picked is going to give it to them. But some of the most bitter and unhappy writers I know are those who've gotten picked all along the way, but they still don't feel like they're a real writer or they feel like, oh, I just got lucky on my first book. My next book is probably not going to get those same accolades. And so really centering why you're doing this and finding a way to give yourself what you need from it and not give it to other people. And we live at a time where there's so many options for getting books into people's hands, into readers' hands. And I like to talk about publishing as a tool. It's just a tool. And there's different tools that you can use to get books into people's hands. So if you really step back and think about, well, I really want to impact people the way the writers I love have impacted me, or I really want to be part of the conversation about this topic, or I, I want to be a writer. That's what I want my identity to be. You can work on all of those things without getting picked. And it's very, I can tell the way I'm speaking right now, it's very atomic habits. It's very James Clear atomic habits about taking on the identity of the, the person that you want to become and then the habits that will lead you to become that person. And I get very impassioned about this topic because I see so many writers playing small and thinking that the only power they have is to cross their fingers and hope to be chosen. And there's so much more that you can do besides that. It's what you said earlier made me think of probably the wisest words I've ever heard, which is weirdly came from the movie Cool Runnings, in which he said, if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. And this is the thing. People think, okay, if I get published, then that's it. But then when you get published, then you're like, well, okay, but I need a bestseller. And then it's like, well, I need a New York Times bestseller. And then when you have that, it's like, no, I need a movie deal. And then it's like, well, I need to be the next Colin Hoover. So yeah, these, these are golf posts that shift a lot. I want to chat about your blueprint method, right? So you created the blueprint to help writers address some of the most common mistakes that you were seeing them make. And you began to use it as a basis for teaching other people how to coach writers through those same pitfalls. Can you speak a bit about that blueprint? Yes. So as a book coach, I was so frustrated by seeing manuscripts that would come across my desk. And I know it's the same with agents, that the same things are wrong in all of them. There's just patterns and people were getting these same things wrong. And it was so frustrating. And I was trying to come up with a method to evaluate or measure what's working right in the story and what needs help. And a tool to do that measuring without having to shuffle or manage 300 pages. So could we ask some fundamental questions of that writer about their story or their book? It's not a story, a nonfiction book to, to see what's the shape of this? What does it look like? It's like a mini model of what that 
that story is going to be. And I designed a blueprint to do that. And there's 14 questions. And if somebody comes to me with a manuscript, I want them to answer those 14 questions before I even look at any of the pages, because I want to know if the fundamentals are in place. So I think of it as a pre-craft checklist. It's not a book about craft. It's not a book about story structure or plot or character or any of that. None of that appears in the blueprint. It's fundamental questions about the shape and the form and the function of this story. And it was so effective to in this measuring process that I began to use it at the beginning of a project too. So before you even start to write, let's answer these questions. They may change, they may morph, they may grow, they may you may throw them all out, but starting with something gave people a solid footing to go on. And so I I now use the blueprint at the beginning of a project that I'm helping someone with and at the revision stage when we're trying to figure out, okay, what do we have here? And it's a framework that is replicable for any genre and any situation and teachable. And so I did begin teaching it to other people and helping them to use it to help writers. The book coach training program that I run is tool agnostic. So what I mean by that is if one of my coaches wants to teach Save the Cat or uh, Story Grid or Story Genius or Hero's Journey or any of it, they should. It's, it's all in service of helping the writer do their best work. And the Blueprint is just another tool in the toolbox. And it is a tool that I, that I use to teach how to begin and, and how to revise, but bring in any tool that works. That's what, what we're going to be doing. But the, the blueprint has proven to be incredibly effective and I love using it and teaching it because it always comes with aha moments for the writer to help them make their work better, which is what it's all about. Yeah, and the, the book coaches that I've spoken to for Author Accelerator are extremely passionate about it. So for our listeners now, if they're thinking, okay, I might want to consider seeking out a book coach, when would they do that? At what point in the process? How does that look? How do they find a good match in terms of getting the right coach as well? So a book coach is different from an editor. An, an editor usually comes in once the work is finished to help make it better. And anybody who's ever been edited has obviously loved that process. There is nothing like having somebody down in the weeds of your words with you. And a book coach is going to be with you from the beginning of that process and, and all the way through. So it's more of a support role. That's why it the word coach. So I always maintain that if you have well, there's two, there's two things. If you have a small budget, the best time to spend it in my mind, no matter where you spend it, is at the beginning of a project. Get those foundations down. Make sure you're writing in the correct genre. Make sure you're aiming for the right word count. Make sure you understand the fundamentals of what you're trying to do. A little bit of an investment at that time can save you literally years of writing in the wrong direction. So that's my favorite time to suggest that people get help. And that's what a book coach is ideally suited to do. And they can help you with your strategy about how you're going to complete this work, how you're going to approach the marketplace. They can answer all those questions and help you sort those out. So I think it's a really excellent time 
to, to do that. If, on the other hand, you are wanting to invest in your learning and invest in having somebody work with you through that whole process, then I think at the investing at the beginning and sticking with them all the way through makes really good sense. And this ties into what we were talking about before. Sometimes people will come to me and say, well, how many New York Times bestsellers have you coached? And what are the chances that I'm going to get a six-figure deal? And those kinds of questions, because they're talking about ROI or return on investment for working with a coach. And I always answer that that those are not the right questions to ask. That's not the right reason in my mind to hire a coach. The A coach is there. You mentioned skiing, uh, learning how to ski before. I am a little obsessed right now with pickleball. I just went to pickleball camp. <laughs> I went to three days of pickleball camp and I spent a great deal of money. I mean, thousands of dollars to, to travel and to stay and to go to pickleball camp. Am I intending to get this money back? I mean, by from pickleball, the answer is no. I am intending to enjoy myself, to learn, to get better, to have somebody to support me in my skill building, to be in community with other people who are learning this thing. And that's the, in my mind, that's the same way to think about an investment of working with a coach. Some people really like holding up all by themselves in the attic with their blanket and their tea and working on their book. And if that's how you best work, that's what you should do. Other people love having the accountability and someone to walk with them and to bounce ideas off of and to learn and to grow. Right now, I actually have hired a, one of my own book coaches, my own self, and I'm very busy and I just love having somebody, having these deadlines, having this accountability, having someone to brainstorm with, paying somebody to be there for me so my poor husband doesn't have to listen to me talk about my book one more time. It's an investment in my own growth and my own self. So in my mind, those are the two, two ways to think about how to use a book coach. And then in terms of how to find one that's right for you. Again, it's knowing what you want, what are you looking for? And at Author Accelerator, we train people to be good book coaches, and we don't believe that coaching is the same skill as writing. So we're not looking for successful writers necessarily. We're looking for people who are good at teaching, project management, understanding the publishing landscape, making a safe space for writers to do good work. And those are the qualities that we look for and that we put put forward in what our coaches are out there doing. So what we're always looking for is a good match on an emotional level. You, you want somebody that you can trust and that you can work with and that you can take criticism from who is going to be, maybe you want somebody gentle, maybe you want some tough love. You've got to know what what you're looking for, what kind of support you're looking for in order to find a good match. Yeah, all excellent points. And there's never any guarantee, even if you could hire the world's best editor, etc., etc., and there's still no guarantee that you're going to hit the New York Times bestseller list. I think the only time you get a guarantee there is if you pay a fortune for a ghostwriter who's gotten a whole bunch of writers on the New York Times bestseller list. And then you've completely missed the point because you haven't even written your own damn book. So what was the point of that? So last question, Jenny, before we run out of time is in terms of the price, what our listeners 
can expect to have to budget for this because I know that there's some things that are affordable and then there's some things that people have looked at and they've been like, holy hell, this is a lot of money. So is it that they need to have a ton of money to be able to do this or are there different levels depending on the different needs of the author? Yes, that's a great question. And the price of working with a book coach is going to range from a few hundred dollars. So if you are looking for someone, say, to give you feedback on that blueprint, those 14 blueprint questions, which is a, a great way to spend a little money, you could spend a couple hundred dollars, 300 $500 to get really detailed feedback, written feedback, and having a strategy call with somebody who can talk you through those answers and talk you through those story points and help you see where you're doing well and where you might need work. That is a relatively small investment, and it can go all the way up to many, many thousands of dollars. And I personally charge a great deal of money at this point in my career. I, I think I'm one, one of the highest paid book coaches in all the research that I have done out there, and it can be wildly expensive. And that is absolutely not something for everyone, and it is there as you said, I'm very careful to tell everyone there's no guarantees. So you want to make sure that you're doing doing it for the right reasons and investing for the right reasons and what kind of outcome you're looking for. And it, it absolutely can't be, well, I'm going to pay all this money so that I'm going to, to your point, get hit the, hit the New York Times bestseller list or get a top agent or make my money back or any of that. There's no guarantee of that. So it's got to be I just want to walk with somebody through this process who knows what they're doing, who can help guide me, who can make me feel confident in what I'm doing, who can help me be the best writer that, that I can be. And those very expensive programs, so I'm talking about upwards of 20000 and sometimes even more dollars, those are usually you're working with someone for a year in a very intensive back and forth process where you're meeting every other week, you're getting eyes on every single line that you write, you're being helped in a strategic way. A price tag that high should come with a lot of touch. I talk about high touch and low touch. I like better than high price and low price because most of the low price things that writers can afford don't come with eyes on your work and feedback on your own work. That's what typically the higher touch thing is going to be higher priced. And in my mind, that's a good rule of thumb to look at is if you're going to pay a whole bunch of money, you better be getting a whole bunch of attention and exactly the kind of attention that you want and need. Paying a whole bunch of money and, and not getting that, it would be a waste. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it depends on affordability. When you speak of upwards of $20,000, like my ears start bleeding because I could never afford that. But at the same time, when I get on an airplane, I can afford to fly economy and that's where I fly. And But there are people who can afford to fly business class and that's where they fly and their needs are different from mine and their budget is different from mine. Yeah. So, but what I do like is that it's not paid to play. Right. You know, if it's a case of saying, well, every author needs to spend $20,000 in order to be able to get published or whatever, you know, that's insane because there are a ton of authors who don't have MFAs, who haven't done a degree, who haven't done anything, and they've been published because they've learned differently or they're just insanely talented, whatever the case may be. Is So it's nice to know that depending on the kind of help you need and depending on your budget, you can reach out and find someone who can assist you in 
whatever sphere you need them to. Absolutely. And I think that what you're paying for at, at those high prices is it's not access. It's not really a better chance. I don't think those things are true. I think it's a better experience in the process, in the creative process is how I think. You know, at the end of the day, my clients who pay me all that money, it's really interesting. What they tend to say is not thank you for whatever I accomplished or achieved. It's usually thank you for helping me do this thing that I've always wanted to do, that I wasn't pulling off by my own self, that I have tried and tried and tried to do in all these different ways. And you helped me to do that thing. That's usually what the feedback is. It's it's more, thank you for walking with me. It's not, thanks for helping me check this box of this thing out here that we can't control. And of course, we all have different budgets that we can give to those kinds of things or not. And Hopefully there's a book coaching solution for, for every budget, including $12. You can get the blueprint book for $12. So hopefully there are solutions out there that can help anyone. Yeah, absolutely. And for our listeners as well, if, you, if you're if you looking for like an editor, for example, you could go on readsy.com and you say, I'm looking for an editor. There's some who will charge you $800 to look at a whole manuscript. And there's some who are editors for like the big five who are moonlighting as other editors on the side, and they are going to charge you an absolute fortune there as well. But again, what we're saying is if you can afford the help and you're able to get it, do it. But certainly we're not saying you have got to be able to spend this kind of money to publish because I published my first novel without having spent an absolute fortune on learning the craft, etc. It was just bum and chair, working my butt off. And there's so many different roads to publication, but it's good to know your options and it's good to know what's available to you. So Jenny, before we end, if people are interested in getting more information, where might they find that? They can visit authoraccelerator.com. And if you're interested in becoming a book coach, we have a training program. And if you're interested in using a book coach, we have a matching program where we will match you with someone that we think is a good fit for you. And there's no obligation to work with the person we match you with. It's just, we think it's a good fit and you can go speak to that person and see if you agree. Wonderful, Jenny. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. 
If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi everyone, welcome to another comps session with our favorite bookish person, Emily Summer from East City Bookshop in Washington, D.C. Emily, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. I always love being here. We love having you. So let's dive right in. Here's our first request. Hi everyone. I am one of the audio editors for the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast. I am making my podcast debut today because the message that was originally left by our caller was a bit fuzzy and we still wanted you guys to get a proper idea of what his message was about and what his novel that he's looking for comps is about. So we have a cli-fi YA novel called Elements to Save the World Earth. It's a dual character POV with a 14-year-old sister and a 12-year-old brother who fall through a portal into a different world. This world is being polluted by Earth and its inhabitants are planning on starting a war with Earth. There are magical characters such as dragons and elves and it's meant to be a fun book tackling climate change issues rather than a preachy sort of one. Okay, so as soon as I heard this caller mention YA cli-fi climate fiction, I thought of Sherry Demoline's The Marrow Thieves. But I think that that one might be too serious given what our listener said that this one's, it's not preachy, it's fun. That's not to say that The Marrow Thieves is preachy, but I think it is more serious than perhaps this one might be a little more enjoyable and adventurous. So with that in mind, I thought of one of my favorite middle grade adventure, but this is middle grade that skews older. So I think it could still work as a comp. And that's The Gauntlet by Karuna Riazi. And that's something, she is someone we love at East City Bookshop. We're going to do a, an event with her soon. And The Gauntlet is sort of like a modern day Jumanji. So it's not a strict, it's not a climate fiction in that regard, but it is a very exciting and fun young adult action adventure. So I think that that could work. I also thought because of the concerns about nature and how we treat our world and pollution, this might sound weird, but hear me out. Carl Hyacin's books for young people are, they're wild. Like he's a wild man. These are cheeky. But he's very concerned with nature, wildlife, and what we're doing to Earth. So even his books that have these silly names like Hoot and Scat and Chomp are set in the Florida Everglades and are very preoccupied with what we're doing to the natural world. So depending on the tone, if the tone is sort of very fun and cheeky, then I think that it would be worth looking at some of Carl Hyacinth's children's books as well. 
Thank you, Emily. I love his books, and I didn't realize he did children's books. He, he's not someone you'd associate with writing for children, which is interesting. Yes, but once you read about them, you can be like, oh, like you'll be like, oh, of course, this is this is very Florida. This is very Carl Hyacin doing what he does best. Amazing. Okay, here is our next one. I'm looking for comps for my literary suspense about a flight attendant who gets stuck in the Swiss Alps after an in-flight emergency, and there she meets a man who looks eerily similar to her husband, the husband she hasn't seen in over a year with whom she is still very much in love. Right now I have Animal by Lisa Tadeo for the complex female protagonist as well as voice, but I'm still missing a more speculative sort of comp or anything really about doppelgangers. The only doppelganger stories I've found have been more crime-related or on the more commercial side. So if you have any suggestions, that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. I love literary suspense. It's one of my favorites. And I really am intrigued by our listeners' mention of a possible comp as for Animal by Lisa Tadeo, which I think is a great one. It's super recent. It's very well known. Lisa Tadeo, I think, has had quite a trajectory with her first two books. So I love that. And the specific question about what might be a comp that deals with doppelgangers sort of stumped me. My initial idea is an older one and perhaps too famous, but I think that sometimes things are, are just so on point that it's worth throwing them in. The Likeness by Tana French is my favorite literary doppelganger story. I won't spoil it for anybody who hasn't read it yet, but it is, as the title suggests, about one character who has a stunning resemblance to another. So because this is literary, because it's suspenseful, worth looking, I think, at Tana French's The Likeness. Then I thought about a book that is not specifically about doppelgangers, but is literary suspense about identity and sort of misidentification and impersonation and those sorts of related topics. And that's Who is Maud Dixon by Alexandra Andrews. So I think that this one too could have the right tone where you really, you have a narrator who is, you're trying to figure things out that she's confused. We're questioning her everything. So I would also look at who is Maude Dixon. And then finally, I'm so intrigued by the setting in the Alps that I had to mention some that might capture that specific place. And that would be One by One by Ruth Ware, The Sanatorium by Sarah Peirce. Those are both Alps set mysteries that might really evoke the setting. Oh, and one other potential doppelganger comp is I think probably a different tone, but worth checking out if only because it's such a great book. And that's The Need by Helen Phillips. So that's what I've got for this one. Thank you, Emily. Okay, here's our next one. Hi, Emily and Bianca. Grateful for your help. I'm looking for comps for my debut mystery, The Lies of the Artist, the first in a planned series set in the art world. Let's dive in. Detective Alice Wexler has it all. A devoted wife, healthy self-assurance, and the highest salary in L.A. County, a currency she uses to handpick her homicide cases. Her latest is the murder of a celebrated curator at the Graves Museum of Art, a sprawling museum situated high above L.A., with billions in the endowment and a staff with egos to match. As Wexler's investigation hits a series of dead ends, she expands her scope to include the Baroque painters the murder victim studied. This leads her to a festering secret held by leaders at the top of the museum's rigid hierarchy. And he comes from mysteries that are intended to be commercial but have a literary bent. I'm after serial readers who love art and a layered reference to Ovid. It's cozy-ish, but tackles themes of power, gender, race, sexual assault. I think it's most similar to Louise Penny's Inspector Gamache novels, but is she too big to comp? 
Our protagonist has a sense of humor, but it's quieter than Finley Donovan or Thursday Murder Club. Thanks. Okay, I already have several friends that I would recommend this book to because I know several people who love like an art an art history murder or like a museum set murder. So I think this one that has a museum curator in it has an automatic audience. At least it does in my immediate circle in DC. And I love the comps that this listener gave us, which is that Louise Penny, and I agree, I would not use Louise Penny if only because when I hear a comp to Louise Penny, I immediately think of Inspector Gamache himself. So I'm thinking of that sort of character. And it sounds like this narrator it is a woman and it's not going to be an Inspector Gamache. So I would stay away from Louise Penny if only because I immediately have a picture of Gamache in my head. But I love the mention that it has a sense of humor, but is quieter than Finley Donovan or the Thursday Murder Club. And those are definitely two of my favorite funny mystery series at the moment. So I love the the mention of those, but the warning that it's not quite there. With that in mind, I thought about who I'm sure I have mentioned her before. Louisa Luna is my favorite mystery writer right now. Any book now, she's going to break out and everybody's going to be like, Louisa Luna, she's the one. So she's got three books. The series starts with Two Girls Down. She may have other books with different characters, but these are the same characters. They are police procedurals slightly turned on their head because our main characters are private investigators and not working with the police department. But they have real personality. They have real senses of humor. They're very alive, but it's not the sort of hijinksy Thursday Murder Club or Finley Donovan. It's a more traditional detective type story than that. So the Louisa Luna books might work. Two Girls Down is the first one. The most recent is Hideout. I have to go back and check, but it is maybe her best yet. So look at Louisa Luna, anybody who wants a good mystery. And then because of the sense of humor too, I thought maybe it's worth comping to Kate Atkinson's Jackson Brody series. Jackson Brody is a great detective. He's a great main character. He has a real sense of humor and a lot of personality, but it's definitely not a Finley Donovan situation. And though Kate Atkinson is... Uh, her books are a juggernaut and I would not necessarily comp to her in all situations. I think the Jackson Brody series is specific enough that, that that might work. And then I thought maybe if it's more sort of classic mystery than these contemporary ones, maybe Maisie Dobbs, Jacqueline Winspear, which of course the Maisie Dobbs book is old, but she is continuing to publish. So that one, that one as well. Yeah, when everybody in the US discovered Kate Atkinson because of Life After Life, I was like, bitch, please. I was reading her Jackson Brodies 10 years ago and they are amazing. Yes, they are amazing. And even before that, she was writing just contemporary literary fiction behind the scenes at the museum. Yes, Life After Life is probably my favorite of hers, but she's someone who could do anything and has been doing anything long before that book. Yeah, Shrines of Gaiety was amazing now recently as well. Okay, next one. G'day from Australia. This is Chelsea Chong. I'd love your help with comp titles, please. My book is a speculative fiction novel about April Callahan, a genetically engineered, hyper-intelligent genius who works in a strict military-like institution called the Wunderkin Project. She develops vaccines and cures that might save humanity when she discovers that her birth mother has died of a disease she already eradicated. The novel is Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go meets Goodwill Hunting, but it's upmarket. So it's accessible, it's well-paced and entertaining, and it's pitched at adults because the 
protagonist's voice and her intellectual capacity and emotional capacity is at an adult genius level, really. So good day, Chelsea. I told myself I wasn't going to try to reply to that one, but I couldn't help it. I couldn't help myself. And I love it when people tell me their names so I know who I'm talking to. So Chelsea, I loved hearing about your speculative fiction novel. I love the comp that you've already given, which is Never Let Me Go meets Goodwill Hunting. I mean, that tells me a lot about where we are. In terms of more recent bookish comps, I almost always mention Blake Crouch when I'm looking, thinking of speculative fiction, specifically if it's something about genetic engineering or genetic modifications. That is also because this is not my wheelhouse. And Blake Crouch is one of the only sci-fi and speculative fiction writers that I gravitate toward and automatically buy. But I would absolutely look at Blake Crouch. The most recent one is sort of what if we zhuzhed up our genes and then what happens to all of us. That's the official scientific term, zhuzhing. I would also look at Jeff Vandermeer. That one might be a little, his or might be a little bit wilder and not quite as grounded as this one sounds like it is, but worth looking at. And then I've probably mentioned in other instances, Kate Hope Day's speculative fiction. And that is because her, both of her speculative fiction novels are read like literary fiction. They're very much grounded in our real world. They do not feel like a sci-fi book, even though they have these speculative angles. And this one mentioning Never Let Me Go and Goodwill Hunting tells me that it that it might read that same way. So I would look at Kate Hope Day's books. Her most recent is called In the Quick. And it is also about a child prodigy with a genius level IQ. And she ends up going to space to look for this lost, a lost spaceship that her uncle was on. So again, it's like trying to save a family member and she's a child prodigy. So I think that one works well. Thank you, Emily. Okay, here's the next one. I'm seeking comps for my upmarket romantic comedy manuscript, Corporate Espionage for Anxious Beginners. Declaring failure on her attempted acting career, Darcy is on to plan B. Take down the big box chain store that bankrupted her family business. After getting a job at the store, she meets Cam, a filmmaker who's intrigued by her mission and ready to help her catch evil doing on a hidden camera in her name badge. Thing is, she's planning to ditch town soon and an adorably hilarious film guy is not part of that plan. She struggles to keep Cam at a distance while getting to know some of the other workers at the store, discovering a growing plot to unionize and a mole trying to shut it down. This is a story about resisting together, standing up for what rings true in your heart, and how sometimes things don't go according to plan, but they're exactly what you needed. My comps were originally book lovers for its witty banter and a man called Uva for its humorous elements of human connection and unexpected community, but I suspect you will not approve, so I would love your suggestions. Okay, so this one, you're not going to hear this caller's name, but she called in a second time to tell us that her name is Erin. So I know that her name is Erin. So hello, Erin. Thank you for writing in. And Erin very helpfully says she thinks it's book lovers meets a man called Uwe, but she suspected that we would not like those comps. I like those comps a great deal. I love those comps. I do think you're right in sensing that these are probably not the most descriptive comps for your work in progress, if only because I feel like everyone with good banter in a rom-com wants to use Emily Henry. And I do too, because I love, I love Emily Henry. But instead of the book lovers comp, maybe you want to look at Tessa Bailey, who is another really good romance writer. She has a series that's called 
I think it's called like the hot and hammered series because it's all about like fixing up houses and, and it's sort of job on the job related. So it's not this corporate espionage. It's not trying to unionize and take down a family business, but it is set in a very specific plot driven, you know, we're trying to save this certain thing. So that could work. And then instead of the man called Uwe Kamp, I thought about something like Flying Solo or Evie Drake Starts Over by Linda Holmes, because I think she does such a nice job at writing small town sort of family business style books. She talks about the importance of community. There are very strong friendships and other community connections in her book, which might be what you're going for with the man called Ove Comp. So I would look at sort of instead of book lovers and Emily Henry, look at Tessa Bailey. And instead of a man called Uve, look at Linda Holmes. Something else that's really useful is follow a ton of bookstagrammers. Many of them do this thing. If you liked X, you will love Y. And that I always find so incredibly useful, not just to find new books, but to find, you know, comps that are a bit more in your wheelhouse as well. Okay, next one. I'm looking for comps for Margaret and Mariana, literary fiction slash magical realism, 100,000 words. A century after her death, the ghost of feminist futurist Margaret Fuller returns. Her mission, to finish work left undone when she died in a shipwreck at the age of 40. The year is 1968, and she's appalled by global chaos. Things are not good for women. In places, they're horrifying. Margaret wants to write a new version of Woman in the 19th Century, her 1845 classic that catapulted her to fame and served as the foundational document for American feminism. She needs a real-life collaborator. She targets Mariana Muller, an ambitious young writer and anti-Vietnam War activist studying at Oxford. It's tough going for both of them. This is Margaret's first foray into influencing reality from the other side. Mariana has plans. Editor-in-chief of the New York Times, first woman to do so. And she doesn't believe in ghosts. So this one, Margaret and Mariana, sounds so interesting to me. The idea of this angry feminist ghost returning to finish what she started, absolutely fascinating. I had a couple of questions before I felt like I could give the most educated comp responses. And that is, I'm so curious as to what inspires her to come back because we're told that when she, the book that, that she has written was in the 1840s. And then she comes back to find a real life collaborator in 1968. So I am just very curious and wondering like, what is the precipitating event that causes her to come back? I feel like that might tell me something about where the book is. And I wanted to know more about the tone of this one because the she's coming back and the ghost made me think of a brand new book that I suspect is going to do really well. It's called The God of Endings by Jacqueline Holland. And it's a book that is, she's not a ghost and it's more of a, a Addie LaRue situation where she is immortal and is living this extended life. But I feel there's something in it where like my vibes are just, maybe it could have God of Endings vibes. But something else tells me maybe that is completely wrong and it's the the 60s setting is something like Lessons in Chemistry. I could totally see Elizabeth Zott from Lessons in Chemistry being contacted by some upset feminist who comes back because Elizabeth is the one who can, I mean, Elizabeth Zott could do it. If you've read that book, she could do anything. So for this one, I want to know, I would just need, I feel like I need a little more to give an on point comp. But I would say if it is, if it skews like very literary and historical, 
look at the God of Endings and maybe even look at which Alice Hoffman book might be the right magical realism comp. And if it has a sort of lighter tone, maybe something like Lessons in Chemistry or one of its friends on the shelf. Listen, an angry feminist ghost who comes back to finish the work she started. This sounds like my memoir, people. (laughs) Okay, next one. Hello to the team at The Shit No One Tells You About Writing and your marvelous booksellers. Thank you for everything you do for writers. I'm looking for comps for my contemporary reimagining of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre as a commercial adult romance. In it, Lee Eyre wants to stretch her talents to their limits, but her boss at Lowood Players won't let her do more than hem and clean. So when she lands her dream job as costume director for the reopening of Thornfield Theater after a deadly fire, she's determined to make the most creative ensemble Seattle has ever seen. Except she can't stop thinking about Alexander Rochester, the mercurial director of their production of Bluebeard. Alexander is hiding something, she's sure of it. His explanations of the strange goings on at Thornfield leave much to be desired, unlike his captivating personality, and the way he draws out her best work without even trying. But when Lee learned the truth Alexander worked so hard to conceal, she must choose between her dreams and her conscience. I'm considering comping Sonali Dev's The Emma Project for the reboot appeal, and Jen DeLuca's well met for the backstage intrigue in the theatrical world. Do those seem fitting? What else should I explore? Thank you so much. Okay, sometimes our listeners and our callers just do my job for me. So this one mentions Sonali Deb, which I had already thought of, and well met. I say yes and yes to both of those. I think that's great. The only thing I will add is that whenever we're talking about contemporary retellings of this sort, I always want to mention Eligible by Curtis Sittenfeld, which is a Pride and Prejudice retelling, and it's just so good. So it's it's like just on the cusp of what we might think is too old now. I think it's 20, I think it's 2016, maybe 2017. But gosh, Curtis Sittenfeld just keeps doing more and more. All of her books are different. Her book, Romantic Comedy, that's coming out in April. chef's kiss. It is outstanding. But I think because she still continues to write and what she does continues to do so well, it's worth mentioning eligible because it's just an outstanding contemporary retelling. That's a book that's been on my to be read pile year on year and it just keeps getting kicked off because of new releases. But now you've motivated me to go back and make sure that I read that one soon. That is one that I did not want to read. I just thought we don't need this. I wish she would write something new. She's too good to do a retelling. And then I was like, well, she nailed it. It was yeah. And I love authors who are writing in all different genres who aren't being boxed into one particular easy to market sort of package. It makes it easier for the rest of us. Absolutely. Okay, next one. Hi, folks. I need help finding comps for an adult fantasy in dual point of view, which is a failed coming of age story. One main character has complex PTSD and experiences internal fragmentation and dissociation. There is a sunlight and shadow romance subplot. The whole story is set in a detailed and vivid world based on the turbulent history of Russia, Eastern Europe, and the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century or thereabouts. The audience I imagine is 15 plus, the SCA participant D&D lovers, role players, con-goers. There are some heavy themes of family-induced trauma, learned helplessness, and identity. Overall, I'd say it's PG to PG-13 rating. Okay, so this one is another one where I have have a few follow-up questions. So we know that this is an adult fantasy. We know it's dual POV and that one of our characters has complex PTSD and has some dissociative tendencies. I know there's a romance. I know that it is inspired by sort of Eastern European 
16th century and like a role playing audience will appeal to it. I don't know like what's actually happening in the book. So I would want to know like what is the con like the central conflict in the book and who is the other character in in our dual POV. That might help me give more specific comps. But in the absence of that, knowing that it is adult fantasy, that it is set centuries ago and it has sort of Eastern European feel, I thought of Catherine Arden, whose books are if not set in Russia, certainly inspired by Russian mythology. The Bear and the Nightingale is one of hers. And then I thought of other writers in that vein. So when somebody comes in and they want a Catherine Arden type book, I also recommend all of or any of Naomi Novik, whichever appeals to them the most. And I also always recommend Helene Wecker's The Gollum and the Jenny, which is a few years old, but the sequel has just come out. And The Gollum and the Jenny is actually set in New York City, but it is the it's historical Eastern European beings that have been brought. So it has, it certainly has the Eastern European and historical fiction vibes. So I would suggest those as a potential starting point, And I'd be curious about, about the rest of it. Thank you. All right. Here's our next one. I'm looking for recent comps for my YA dystopian sci-fi novel. In a world ravaged by ecological disasters, the rich live in the bubble, a sprawling metropolis enclosed in a transparent dome that filters out the earth's toxic atmosphere. Everyone else, including 16-year-old Dawn, live in the exposed, run-down town known as Nowhere. Between the threat of a mysterious dreaming sickness plaguing Nowhere's children and caring for her addict dad, Dawn's way too busy to dream of a better future. That changes when she starts working for Rita, a local businesswoman and bubble council representative known for her generosity. But of course, all is not what it seems. Other key book elements include a toxic mentor relationship, a sapphic romance, medical exploitation, characters gaining mysterious powers and a fast paced but emotionally charged writing style. Thank you so much. So it's so interesting how sometimes we'll get a few that that have similar themes and that here we have another YA dystopian sci-fi and it it's a world beset by ecological turmoil. So I'm thinking again of our climate fiction and I will mention again the Marrow Thieves, which I mentioned in our first one. I think that one's absolutely worth looking at. And then I would also look at, you know, we have these classic YA dystopian series that are that are too old and too big to be worthwhile, like The Hunger Games and Divergent. But I would look at something a little more recent and slightly lesser known, but just as good, if not better, The Ember and the Ashes by Saba Tahir and the Scythe series by Neil Schusterman. And that one in particular may work well here because that is a there, there's an apprenticeship situation. And then because our work in progress here in question has a mentor, the, the apprentice and mentor line might draw some nice parallels. Thank you. Okay, here's the next one. Hello, I am looking for comp titles for my second world fantasy about a young woman who will lose everything unless she can find the traitor who is helping thieves to steal her court's liquid magic. She seeks help from her brother, who has gotten rich in the black market for magic, but the closer she gets to unraveling a scheme to destroy her court, the more she begins to suspect that her brother may be involved. In my query letter right now, I write that my book will appeal to fans of The Unspoken Name by A.K. Larkwood and The Unbroken by C.L. Clark. I love these books, and I should maybe note that there's no main romance plot in my novel, 
but I still think the audience for books like these would be the audience for my book. However, I'm not sure how to tell whether a book has been successful enough to seem like a smart comp to an agent. I'd greatly appreciate any insights or any other suggestions for comp titles. Thank you. I love the idea of this, like a young woman who is trying to save the liquid magic. Something about the magic in liquid form is very appealing to me. So I love thinking about that and this black market, the brother who's selling things on the black market. I think, again, people really know what they're doing now because we've got the unspoken name and the unbroken. I think those are excellent comps. The unspoken name made me think that it might also be worth looking at A Memory Called Empire by Arcady Martine because I know that Martine blurbed the unspoken name. That one may be too like space opera as opposed to fantasy, but I think that the characters might work. The question of when is a book successful enough to be a a great comp, that I don't know because all I know is a bookseller. I know what sells well for us, but independent bookstores are very individual. So I know what I love and what sells for us. I don't know numbers that would translate into a viable query. That said, one that I know that would be big enough is the Graceling series by Kristen Kishore. And that, the Graceling, the first book, is a little bit old, but she has continued to write that series. And in fact, a Graceling, another Graceling realm novel just came out called Bitter Blue. But I think that that one has the same young girl or young woman in a second world fantasy, and that would be worth looking at. And that one absolutely has done well enough to comp that much, I know. Thank you. Okay, next one. Hi there. Appreciate the help in identifying potential comps for my upmarket 1987 era historical novel. It's Holden Caulfield-esque narration without all the cursing and is written in the first person present. When his ma is diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's, 28-year-old Asher returns home to Beacon, New York, a place he's avoided since his role in his best friend Gus's death a decade earlier. He plots to quickly sell the house to pay for ma's nursing home, then start fresh somewhere new. But Ma refuses to sell, the house desperately needs repairs, and the only affordable contractor is his high school frenemy Luke, who's now married to Asher's childhood love, reigniting a bitter rivalry. Not to mention that he may be developing a crush on his cute realtor. As days become months, Asher confronts the relationships he fractured and the future he squandered by leaving. An unexpected betrayal upends everything Asher thought he knew about Gus and himself. As Ma's memory quickly degrades and problems with the house compound, he must find a way to care for her and right his past wrongs to have a second chance at a happier tomorrow. So far, the closest comp I've been able to find is The Noel Diary by Richard Paul Evans. It touches on the themes of coming home after a long time away, past trauma, and romantic subplot. I'm not sure it's the best one, but I'm struggling to find others that may be a fit. Thanks for the help. I love anything in the 80s. I I often say that when it comes to 90s, but I love anything in the 80s too. So an upmarket book set in 1987 is very tantalizing to me. This caller mentioned The Noel Diary by Richard Paul Evans as a possible comp. I have not read that book, so I don't know. It might be exactly spot on. I may hesitate for one reason, and that's that when I hear the Richard Paul Evans name, I think of a couple of things. And one is I think of a lot of holiday books. I think he has several that are holiday focused. And this one sounds like it is not, or our our work in progress. The Noel Diary, I believe, is. And I feel like it that he writes books that, and this is no shade or knock, it's just a style, I feel like that, that are deliberately sentimental, which is certainly what we want sometimes and what people want sometimes. I would say if this one is not quite as deliberately tugging at the heartstrings, then I might shy away from that because it might draw the wrong conclusions. When I heard this description, I was thinking of, okay, we could find something with an 80s setting 
or we find something that is someone returning home and dealing with the mess of everything that that is left there and sort of a late later in life coming of age because this character is in his late 20s. So with that in mind, I thought about M.O. Walsh's The Big Door Prize, which is one of my favorite recent novels about a small town and all the many characters and, and the family connections and dealing with what's happening there. That was just made into a TV show, which I have not seen yet. It's got Chris O'Dowd from Bridesmaids in it. It sounds very good, but it must, you know, it got options. So that's a good sign <laughs> as far as comps and queries go. I thought of The Old Place by Bobby Finger, which just came out. I haven't read it yet, but I gave it to my mother because I think it has this sort of like lovely small town, people helping each other out eccentric characters while still dealing with serious issues. Like here we have a mom with dementia. And then again, I thought about one of my favorites, Linda Holmes, that I always mention. I would say specifically Flying Solo might be the better comp here than Evie Drake starts over. And then I would also look at Jennifer Close's Marrying the Ketchups, which is her latest. It came out last year. It's just an outstanding family saga. And it's about siblings who are running their their parents' restaurant, the family restaurant in Chicago. But you've got a couple of siblings who are dealing with different things who have come back home. And I would look at that one. It's also just an outstanding and wonderful book. We had her on the podcast. So for our listeners, if you're intrigued by that, go back and find that episode as well. Okay, next one. Dear Bianca, Carly, Cece, and Bookseller, thank you for all the time and effort you put into the podcast. Listening to you gave me the confidence to write my first novel. I'm seeking comps for my debut novel, The Van Gogh and the Vanitas. It's a dual timeline, art, historical, cozy mystery for adults. For comps, I think it would appeal to readers of Ellie Griffith's Ruth Galloway series who cheer for a female sleuth from academia and fans of intricate plots with recent historical settings, such as Laurie R. King's Back to the Garden but I don't have any comps related to art mysteries or mysteries without a murder. The first timeline takes place in contemporary Berkeley, California, and the second timeline takes place in Paris in 1968. There is a social critique of wealth disparities and a clear feminist theme, but with a light touch. Thank you so much for your ideas. And now we have another another one that's dealing with sort of art, like we had a museum curator. Now we've got an art historical cozy mystery. I think the mention of Ellie Griffith's and Laurie R. R. King, I think those are outstanding. I would absolutely go there because I hear Ellie Griffiths and I immediately know what type of mystery it is. I think nobody else does exactly what she's doing. So I think that one is spot on. I also thought of this one is too old, but it would be it might be worth checking out just in terms of research if you haven't already, which you probably have. But Elizabeth Peters had an old like I mean, this is probably 60s and 70s mystery series about an art historian. Her name was Vicki Bliss. So it's old, but this is that kind of like art, cozy art mystery that would be worth looking at. And in terms of just just really good, vivid, cozies, dual timeline, potentially, I don't know if any of if the one that I'm about to mention has dual timeline, but I think that tonally it might work. We love and sell a ton in our store of Mia Manansala's Arsenic and Adobo series. That is not set in the art world at all, but it's set in the restaurant world, but in terms of audience, it might have a lot of resonance. All right, here's the next one. Hi, I'm seeking help for comps for my adult fantasy novel. It features an older protagonist who gets roped into helping fulfill a prophecy and goes on a quest to defeat a despot. 
All the comps I can think of are older, such as The NeverEnding Story and The Chronicles of Verdane. I'm sure there are newer comps, I just can't think of them and I'm drawing a blank. I'd appreciate anything you can help with. As for my writing style, I would love to be compared to either V.E. Schwab or Aaron Morgenstern, but seriously, how can you compare your writing style to people like those? Thank you for any help that you can provide and for uh, providing the service to all of us. It's absolutely amazing. Thank you. So I love that this one has an older protagonist as an older bookseller. I love an older protagonist, although we don't know quite what older means in this context. That's okay. And I love that we know that the never ending story is a potential past comp and that we're working with the style, the aspirational style of Aaron Morgenstern and V.E. Schwab. So with those two heavyweights in mind, I think that this caller should also look at the works of Catherine Addison, Susanna Clark, and Deborah Harkness and see if any of those have particular books that might be really on point. And those could be really good similar comps to V.E. Schwab and Aaron Morgenstern, but maybe not quite as pie in the sky. Wonderful, Emily. Thank you. Okay, here's the next one. Hi, Carly, Cece, and Bianca. This is Rebecca from your Deep Dive Workshop series, and I would be so grateful for your bookseller's help with comp titles. My upmarket novel is about 25-year-old Sydney, who is largely a grown-up child without a paying job and still living at home. She's not making a life of her own until she meets a Native American boy in the children's shelter where she volunteers and becomes desperate to foster or adopt him. Complications ensue, and the book follows her longing to become the little boy's mother and the related cultural implications, as well as topics of foster care and parental loss at a young age. While these are all heavy topics, the main character is a socially awkward people pleaser who has a unique voice that brings levity and heart to the story. I would love three comp titles if possible, one that relates to bridging cultures, ideally between Native American tribes and non-tribal communities, one that touches on foster care and unlikely paths to motherhood, and one with an earnest, quirky narrator like mine, so it's clear the tone of the novel balances the difficult subjects throughout. Thank you so much for your help. I love the specificity of this request, and I tried to answer all three prongs of what this caller is looking for. So the first one is something that deals with the native and non-native cultural divide. And for that, I thought immediately of the book, Probably Ruby by Lisa Bird Wilson. That is a very new, it's just out in paperback story about a native Canadian adoptee. It is fantastic. Absolutely wonderful. I recommend it as just a wonderful book to read, and a comp about cross-cultural adoption. The second request was for something that might deal with fostering or unlikely motherhood. And for that, I thought of Stray City by Chelsea Johnson, which is not a book about foster care or foster to adoption, but it is very much a book about unlikely motherhood. And moreover, I think it meets potentially the third prong that our caller was requesting, which is that voice of a quirky, earnest narrator. So in Stray City by Chelsea Johnson, we are in Portland, Oregon in the 1990s, and our unlikely mother is unlikely because she is a dyed-in-the-wool lesbian who is not expecting to have a one-night stand and become pregnant by a man. It is a marvelous book, so I highly recommend that one. And for both two and three, the unlikely motherhood angle, as well as the quirky voiced narrator, I would look at Sky Falling by Mia McKenzie, 
one of my recent favorites in this book, a woman who is sort of proudly a hot mess. She's got it all together career-wise. She runs a travel company, so she travels all over to these fabulous places, but that allows her to sort of escape any long-term personal connections and personal ties with her family. She does not want to be tied down. Well, she is in Philadelphia for a brief spell. That's sort of the place that she that, that she grew up and calls home, but she's not there for very long. But when she comes back at one moment at the beginning of this story, she is made aware of a teenage girl who she is the egg donor. So she is the biological mother for this child who's the mother who raised her has died. It's Wonderful. So I think it would fit both the second and the third prongs of this comp. I would also recommend, because this is a book that deals with foster care and potential adoption, the brand new narrative nonfiction book, We Were Once a Family by Roxana Asgarian. And it is, it almost has a true crime angle because it's about this tragic story of two white women who adopted um, multiple black children. And it came to a tragic end. But I recommend it as if anybody is delving into the subject of fosterhood, fostering, it's a great one to read and sort of just keep the issues in mind. Okay, here is our next one. I'm looking for comps from a contemporary romance which follows Jess, a woman whose husband went missing and is presumed dead in a tragic accident. Three years later, she meets a fellow widower and doctor, Roger, and suddenly finds herself on an unexpected path toward healing. But just as sparks start to fly between Jess and Roger, she also meets Luke, a new-to-town restaurateur. Encouraged by her best friend to casually date both men and give herself a much-deserved chance to figure out what she really wants, Jess does just that. But as her love life gets increasingly complicated, so do the ghosts of her past. When she discovers that the husband and father of her children she had mourned for so many years had been cheating on her up until the day of his disappearance with one of the most important women in her life, and she has to navigate the fallout of this and her complicated love life while confronting her husband face-to-face after he is found alive. My current comps are Taylor Jenkins reads One True Loves for the husband returns from the dead to a wife who is moving on angle, and Emily Giffen's The Lies That Bind for the infidelity aspect, but I'm afraid both authors are too big. Any help would be much appreciated. Thank you. So I love the comps that are that this reader has and writer has suggested. I immediately, before she even mentioned it, thought of One True Loves by Taylor Jenkins Reid. I think that's an obvious comp. I think The Lies That Bind and Emily Giffen is a really good one. I thought of a book that has this sort of You've been betrayed by your husband and you think that he's dead angle. It's called The Displacements by Bruce Holsinger. However, the whole story of that book is that is disaster climate fiction and it just happens to have this one angle. So I would not recommend that as a comp, although I did think of it and I did really enjoy the book. So a possible better comp might be Maybe Someday by Colleen Hoover. I mean, I know she's her own her own machine and her own world, but I do think that that could have some of the the secrets and intrigue of the book. And there's another author named Lucy Score, S-C-O-R-E, and her books too sort of deal with this, these romantic conundrums, possible secrets, and I think that she might work as well. Amazing, Emily. Thank you. Okay, here's our next one. Thank you so much for this opportunity for questions on comps. Here is my story. Maggie Mullane hasn't had it easy. She is a product of childhood abuse, which has caused self-esteem issues and self-destructive tendencies, which have been roadblocks in her relationships. While Maggie is working as a nurse for Dr. Jackson, they both start to develop very intense feelings for each other. 
As their relationship, both personal and professional, seem to grow, they find themselves in the middle of a hard decision with the odds stacking against them. Between Maggie's crazy ex and a malicious ophthalmologist who has it out for Jackson, they struggle figuring out if this could be worth fighting for. Maggie is about to go all in, but will Dr. Jackson's hidden past be what holds their future? For comp titles, I have considered Tessa Bailey's Too Beautiful to Break due to the secret past of Sage and Belmont, as well as their intense relationship, and also considering E.L. James the Mister for the off-limit boss and employee love interest. I would appreciate any and all suggestions. Thank you. So I like the comps that that our caller has suggested here, that Tessa Bailey and E.L. James, the mister. I was trying to think of books that have this sort of the medical angle, the doctor. Kimmery Martin is an author who I think is a doctor and writes books that are that are set in a medical setting. So you may look at Kimmery Martin's books and see if any of those feel right. I thought of L. Kennedy's Good Girl Complex not a medical setting. This is not a doctor and nurse scenario, but it is someone who has returned to town, is sort of torn on a relationship. There are deep feelings, potential secrets that threaten the the current situation. And then finally, I thought about A Brush with Love by Maisie Eddings, which is a romance that's set in the dental world. Thus the the brush is the toothbrush, but that is, that's a, I think that's a dentist and a dental student or maybe two dental students, but that might work as well with our, with our doctor nurse situation. Marvelous. Okay. Here's our next one. I'm searching for comps for my 75,000 word third person dual POV literary or women's fiction novel. It deals with themes of grief, art, domestic violence, and female friendship. I see it on the shelf near Celeste Ng and Ann Patchett, just in terms of style and intended audience, but I'd love to find books more similar in subject. Margaret Wilkes, a fiercely private emergency room nurse in Cincinnati, Ohio, unexpectedly gains custody of her best friend's teenage daughter, Sam. This is tough enough, considering Sam just lost her mother and her dad is in prison for the crime. But taking care of Sam is more difficult than Margaret expected. Sam vandalizes her school's art room, getting suspended. And worse, she believes her father is innocent. But when Sam violates Margaret's privacy by reading her journal, Margaret decides Sam needs to know the whole truth, that Sam's father was physically abusive, that Margaret abandoned Sam's mom when she needed her the most. Well, I love Celeste Ng and I really love Anne Patchett, so I'm thrilled to hear that this book belongs alongside those. I would absolutely comp to Celeste Ng. I think it has a real Little Fires Everywhere vibe from what this one-minute snippet said. And I would also suggest a book called Family Law by Jen Phillips. That's G-I-N Phillips. And that's a book that take, it takes place in the 80s, but it is also sort of a woman who doesn't necessarily want to take, I'm not sure if she ever gets like custody per se, but a, a, a teenage girl comes into her life sort of unrequested by her and they become caught up. And I think that it, it deals with similar issues and and it might be a nice comp. Jen Phillips also wrote an absolutely terrifying thriller called Fierce Kingdom, which trigger yes. warning for gun violence, but man, it's a good one. Family law doesn't have, it's yeah. not at, at all similar to Fierce Kingdom. Yeah, that was a hell of yeah. a page turner. And it was wonderful to see Ann Patchett get her medal from President Biden, along with Bruce Springsteen for contributions to the art. That was oh, my favorite. That was awesome to see. Yeah, and, and Colson Whitehead, I think, in that group as well. Okay, next one. Hi, thank you so much for doing this. I would love help finding comp titles for my upcoming adult speculative thriller. The log line is, 
when an artificial town traps its citizens and forces them into violence, Nia is the only one who has kept her memory, and she must break loose and free the town before it consumes the world's population. It's the changing worlds of Dark City meets a battle royale of Westworld with a gaming twist. There is an undercurrent of the story with a sibling-brother-sister relationship of their reunion after their parents passed away in a car accident, so there are themes of loss and forgiveness streaming beneath the rest of the story. Although I do have more multimedia comps, I would love to have maybe one or two recent titles that have a thriller vibe with a science fiction speculative plotline. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. So I love a thriller, as I'm sure I've said many times in the past. And when I'm thinking about thriller vibes with a sci-fi plotline, you know I'm going to say Blake Crouch. I always do. But I also thought for this one of The World Gives Way by Marissa Levian. It's, it's a, it is more of a literary sci-fi thriller, but I think that it could work. And I would also, you know, when we're talking about the speculative thrillers, I always mention Ernest Klein or Andy Weir. So even if the plots aren't the same, I think that they do that so well. Like they make a page turning thriller that has these speculative sci-fi elements and they just do it in a fantastic way. Thank you. Okay, here's our next one. Hey guys, I'm going to apologize for my for my stutter right, right off the bat, but I'm looking for comp titles for my first adult novel. I've written... YA and I have a few different YA project finished but this is my first attempt at writing an adult novel. So returns home because Jalen ha- Jalen and Rustin are now married but Jalen ends up accident like getting in a drunk driving accident and dies. And this tone like it the Dawn flashes back to 2012 so there's a lot of nostalgia. The Hunger Games Sony was a huge fan of it's one of her hyperfixations. It's very like this like lost nostalgia and like Sony like trying to figure out where she belongs as like someone who's not neurodivergent. So first of all, congratulations on working on your first novel for adults. This book, because it deals with sort of getting over a very traumatic event and grief and belonging, I thought of one of my absolute favorites in recent years, Anne Napolitano's Dear Edward. So the plot and the characters, I think, are different, but both both books deal with a precipitating, terrible event and a great loss, and then how the survivors deal with that. And Anne Napolitano is having a real moment right now. Dear Edward just came out as a, an Apple TV series, and her newest book, Hello Beautiful, is Oprah's 100th book club pick. And I loved I loved Hello Beautiful almost as much as Dear Edward, but Dear Edward really is just one of my favorites in recent years. And in terms of getting over grief and Finding a sense of belonging, I thought of Matthew Quick's We Are the Light, which is his most recent. And then I think the works of Frederick Backman also do this really nicely. So I would see if any of Frederick Backman's other than A Man Called Uwe might work. Thank you, Emily. Guys, you are keeping Emily so, so busy. I think she must be freaking exhausted by now, but we've still got, I think, five left. So let's let's get them done. Okay, next one, Emily. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. My name is Brittany, and I would love some help with comp titles. My debut novel is commercial adult fiction set in a post-apocalyptic world two years after a virus has divided mankind into different regions according to blood type. My story is narrated by a strong 35-year-old female protagonist who is a midwife and who happens to have a rare blood type that is immune to the virus. When her sister becomes pregnant and develops dangerous hypertension, 
she must leave her behind in search of life-saving medication. Through her journey, she uncovers the evil behind one region's ruthless hunt for a cure. This novel's external genre is action, but there's also a subgenre of romance. And though it touches on some darker themes, my book has many lighter scenes and is filled with hope and the motivation to rebuild. I have just read the potential comp title, The Book of the Unnamed Midwife, but I feel it's too old to comp. And also, I know that my protagonist isn't quite as gritty as the one Meg Ellison featured. Okay, so we've got a, a, another post-apocalyptic book here. I I feel like we're going to start to see more and more of this like po- like virus and post-virus for obvious reasons. And I thought of the passage by Justin Cronin, which is a little bit older, but he has continued to write some. There's been at least one sequel, and he has a newer book out now. So I thought of the passage and. Wanderers by Chuck Wendig. Both of those are post-apocalyptic books that I think would work if they are too gritty because the book of the unnamed midwife was too gritty. If those are too gritty, then I would suggest Karen Thompson Walker's The Age of Miracles and The Dreamers. So those are both speculative fiction that are not quite post-apocalyptic, but they are sort of approaching some sort of doom, some sort of bad thing in both of those are happening that we can't quite figure out what it is, but they're not gritty. They are very grounded and emotional and they do deal with family relationships and sort of how we're dealing. And I, I love them both. I think they are beautiful literary near apocalypse books. Awesome. Okay. Next one. I'm looking for comps from our young adult science fiction novel, Time is Wild. It's a time travel adventure set in the London suburbs in 2017. It has a friends to lovers to enemies twist. I believe its contemporary setting gives it crossover appeal. The story is about 15-year-old zoology nerd Amrita. She paints extinct animals to cope with the memories of the accident which killed her auntie Daksha and ripped off her arm. Cyrus, her tech-savvy best friend, has built a time machine. The friends bring zoological treasures from the pre-colonial past to post-apocalyptic paradises in a distant future where it seems humans no longer exist. The story includes trips to the past and lots of animals, but also visits a range of future settings, features creepy biotech companies and nanobot-enhanced assassins, along with other cool technology. Although this is a time travel story, there is no point where the plot device is used to amend and read his disability. Time is Wild has the emotional heart of Only a Monster by Vanessa Len and the sci-fi film of Emily Savard's This Mortal Coil. Okay, soon, I joke that soon people are going to realize that the YA and, well, really any of the fantasy and sci-fi are really stretching my expertise, but I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep trying. So for this one, it is very helpful to me when I hear what you're thinking of putting it next to the shelf and what you're thinking of the, the comps. So when I hear this mortal coil and only a monster, that tells me, that gives me really good information to go on. So the first thing I thought of is this savage song by V.E. Schwab, because I feel like that captures the only a monster vibes. And I would suggest that one. It also takes place in a city, if I remember correctly, that's sort of a like New York, Gotham, Gotham, London hybrid. So it's it might capture the London feel of this one. And the other one, which is also English, has an English setting, is in more specific time travel, if I'm correct, is Timekeeper by Tara Sim. And she's had some other really great ones that have come out more recently, but Timekeeper is time travel specific. Awesome, Emily. Thank you. Okay, next one. Hi, Bianca, a mysterious bookseller. I'm hoping you can help me with some comps for my adult fantasy manuscript. The novel follows Riona, an assassin and spy that reports to one of the most powerful men in Sistine, the capital city's archbishop. 
When her sister's freedom from one of the most notorious pleasure houses in the city is offered as collateral, Riona takes on a job to kill one of the highest officials of the king's court. With mere days before a tight deadline to carry through with the assassination, the truths of rebellion and betrayal Riona uncovers threaten to unravel her connection with the church, her relationship with her sister, and the world she has so meticulously crafted for herself, and promises to destroy everything she loves. The voice is similar to Rebecca Roanhorse's Black Sun, but the setting is quite different. There's quite a bit of politics, a seedy underbelly spy network, and complicated sister dynamics. It may be important to note that Rihanna doesn't necessarily get the W in the end, as this is part of a series. Any suggestions? Thank you so much in advance. Okay, I love that this one said hello to a mysterious bookseller. That's me, the mysterious bookseller. And I know what this this writer meant, which is that, you know, who which who's going who is it going to be? But I also love thinking of myself as mysterious because I am not mysterious. I am an open book. <laughs> but anytime I can claim a little bit of mystery, I really enjoy it. So thank you. Because this is compared immediately to Rebecca Roanhorse and because we're dealing with sort of an assassin and a spy, I thought about Robin Hobbs' assassin Apprentice. That is an older book. It's a classic. However, it still sells and it is being repackaged and republished as we speak. So it's going to be back on the shelves in new, beautiful condition very soon, which might make it have a new life and new relevance. And then for recent books that deal with the the that are fantasy series that deal with political intrigue and political mystery, Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon. And The Poppy War by R.F. Kuang. So those are big bestsellers in our store, beloved by our sci-fi and fantasy readers, and I think work with what this writer is, is trying to accomplish. Thank you. Okay, second last one. My Upper MG Fantasy is based on a Pakistani folktale passed down in my family. It has one mythological creature and a Narnia feel, with sibling bonds, obstacles in a kingdom, portal into a magical world, minus the talking animals. It is third-person point of view, told from alternating points of view of two sisters. Right now, I am comping Tristan Strong for a non-European folklore and Arusha for the sass and the sarcasm. I don't know if my one mythological creature gives me enough to comp mythological folklore. Are there any titles that I should be looking at? Thank you so much for your help. Okay, this you're right on the money, I think, with Tristan Strong and Aru Shah. Those are two series that I uh, recommend the most when people are looking for middle grade fantasy series. I think they're wonderful. I think it's totally fine to use those as mythological retelling comps, even if you only have one fantastical creature. I don't think it's the number of the creatures or the creature itself that makes the the comp work. I think it's the fact that this is folktale inspired and has that leaning. That's very popular right now. So I love to hear that. Three others that I would recommend to go along with Tristan Strong and Aru Shah, The Jumbies by Tracy Baptiste, which is based on Caribbean folktales and Caribbean mythology. The Serpent's Secret by the author, their last name is Das Gupta. And The Last Quintista by Donna Barba Higuera. So those are all books that are in at least in part inspired by a cultural mythology, but they all look at it and work with it in different ways, which I think totally that just makes our bookshelves stronger. Wonderful. Okay, the last one. Hi, I would love to know um, some comp recommendations. The Wet Season is an upmarket fiction debut that's complete at 74,000 words. 
the story of Belinda and Celeste, two 36-year-old former high school best friends who escaped their lives and moved to Serena, a fictional island near Costa Rica. After they begin renovating an abandoned and quite possibly haunted beachfront mansion, they must reveal hidden secrets and build back trust before a stalker shatters their fragile new world. The action takes place in 2015, which was the year that I first traveled to Costa Rica with my husband and three children and fantasized about coming back with my best friend. The year was a turning point for so many things. Trump was a joke and climate change still felt reversible. With elements of romance and suspense, the book explores female relationships, platonic and romantic, and the gray areas in between. Thank you. I love it when we get a title, as I've said before, because then I might see it on the shelf or see it in a catalog and be like, oh, I remember hearing about this. Obviously, titles change, but I can dream. So for the wet season, I was trying to picture things that had this strong element of friendship and suspense in an exotic location. So for this one, we've got a fictional island that is that seems to be close to or nearish to Costa Rica. So I thought of The Goddesses by Swan Huntley. That one takes place in Hawaii. Um, But it's got that interesting setting along with a central core friendship and lots of secrets. Similarly, The Suspect by Fiona Barton, that one's set in Thailand and it's backpacking friends and some, at least one or maybe all of them go missing. But again, it's like friendship, secrets, suspense. Forces of Nature by Jane Harper deals with this similarly. And then the Lisa Jules, The Family Upstairs, captures that bad house. There's a bad house that's at the center. So I hopefully none of those aren't too mystery specific, um, but I think they all capture the friendship, the secrets, and the, the remote exotic location vibes of the wet season. Amazing. Other ones that might also work is Andrea Bartz. Not her last one, her second to last one was also like the backpacking Mm -hmm. vibes, friends, something goes wrong. And also Ella Berman, her latest book, I think it was When We Were Innocent. Or Before We Were Innocent. Yeah, but before we were innocent, I think that might also maybe capture some of these vibes. I'm very excited about that one. And I loved Ella Berman's The Comeback. Love it. I loved both of them. I got to interview her for the podcast on her latest one, and I flew through that one. It was an absolute page turner. It was amazing. Emily, thank you so, so much for your time, and we look forward to having you back next Thank you so much. See you soon. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.